The amount of times I've had people messaging me, get a guard on the podcast. Prison officer. Interview a, <laughs> a CO, a DO. Well, your wish is my command. And I have here with me today, Sam. Thank you, you very much for coming on. Thank Sam, you for inviting me. You're welcome. Sam reached out um, by email. I read his book. And, you know, being in prison myself, when I'm thinking there's threats to my life, all I'm thinking about is my own survival. I'm not really concerned about the guards. It's actually like an us versus them mentality. But being out of prison and just reading Sam's book, I really felt like I was there with you and I sensed how, you know, you tasked to look after some dangerous people and if you, you, you slip for one second, you, you turn the wrong way, next thing someone's knocking you out, next thing someone's trying to knock you out, next thing someone's throwing shit at you. And I just, I just felt how fucking stressful this job is um, to be on the other side of it like that. Now, one of the stories that struck me the most in this book was what you wrote about Liverpool gangster Danny G. And if you could tell us a bit about Danny G and what happened there, that would be great to start out, I think. Right, can I just correct, first of all, we're prison officers in this country. <laughs> the press and everyone calls us uh, guards, but, you know, it's not good that. Anyway. Not screws. I don't mind being called a screw. It's to do with the locks, you know. A lot of people get offended. Me, yeah. not so much. Right, Danny G. Danny G is he's what I'd call a one percenter. Uh, prison-wise, probably less than 1%. Um, best example that everyone will know will be Charlie Bronson, yeah? yeah? Very disruptive prisoner, very violent, hard man uh, who's made a career out of being in prison. And there's lots of prisoners like him, um, not so well-known, Danny G being one of them. Now, the thing that Danny G brings to the party is his physicality. Mm. He's a big lad, Um He's from a notorious family in Liverpool that are well known. Any anyone from Liverpool, if you ask them whether they know, you know, they all know who the G's are. Um, spent a lot of time as a young offender or young person in prison, in and out of prison, and he'll have been battered stupid. So people like Danny G, Charles Bronson, the prison service to some extent um, creates these people. Yeah, you know, they 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 don't like the system. Uh, they certainly have no respect for prison officers and they're not fearful of anything. So this lad, maybe six foot two, the first time I saw him, the thing that struck me being a rugby player, thick neck and thick wrists and very, very powerful. You know, a, a fit 17 stone, um, maybe unfit 20 stone, but he, he'd got everything. Um, when I worked on K-Wing, we had lads as big as Danny G, you know, Jim Eds some really big lads, but they weren't as problematic because these these one percenters have an attitude as well. You know, they, they have an air about them and they can cause problems. They can disrupt the whole prison. Yeah. And what was it that um, he brought, drew you, your attention to him? What was he, what was he doing? Okay, Saturday night, I was um, trained by the prison service, um, tornado train, that's your riot training. To your common man. Every prison has so many officers who are tornado trained. You go away, just same as the police and the army. You know, they put you in as realistic situations as possible, throw things at you, 
And I mean, they used to really throw things at you. You know, you come away battered and bruised. However, health and safety being what it is now, you know, they're going to be throwing bean bags and tennis balls soon instead of what were they throwing? Blocks of wood. Um, when I come away from my week, I had a bruise, what six inch by six inch on my abdomen, uh, swollen ankle or whatever. You just get on with it. The thing was, when I went from Strangeways, a lot of people at Strangeways wanted to be on the Tornado team, do the training, you know, bit of kudos. And it, it's, it's part of the sort of macho-type prison officer thing. Yeah. What struck me when we went training was that some of the other prisons, uh, staff were forced to go. Mm. So some of the smaller prisons, you get people who didn't want to be in there, fully kitted up, getting things thrown at them, you know, not good. Anyway, so Danny G, Saturday night, just cracked a can, literally took <laughs> took froth off a can of stones. Um, that's a Sheffield uh, alcoholic bitter, partial to that, being from Sheffield. Strange ways comes up. So I knew where it was straight away. The previous night, Friday night, I'd been in the jail. Danny G, uh, he was in the segregation unit at that time. Quite often these prisoners spend a lot of time in segregation units, uh, solitary confinement, as it's known abroad, you know, in the shoe, that sort of thing, or on special units, uh, special intervention units, things like this. There's lots of them dotted about in the prison service. And the thing about these units, segregations, and of course prison health cares, is it's quite a high staffing to prisoner ratio. And it's a very, very strict regime. You know, not a lot of time out of cell. Certainly in, in our prison service, segregation prisoners, don't socialise with each other, be out one at a time. They might get a couple on the yard, on separate yards, but they certainly won't be socialising with each other. So this Friday night, um, I don't know what he kicked off about. I do know that 11 staff got kitted up. When I say got kitted up, um, overalls, knee pads, shin pads, elbow pads, helmets, gloves. And he was threatening to smash a cell up, or he had smashed a cell up. So this was a, a planned removal, as we call. Two two sorts of uh, restraint in prison. There's a, a planned removal and there's spontaneous. Spontaneous, obviously, when something happens, you know, somebody kicks off or whatever, bam, you're in there. Anyway, these 11 staff have gone in and he's basically ragged them all over. Not necessarily battered them, you know. <laughs> the, the thing about this lad 11 is... 11 at once. 11, 11 staff. Now, what you have to understand is... 11 people will have been picked to go in there. If you had a choice and you picked the 11 biggest lads in that prison or lasses or whatever, you know, that way-minded staff, it would have been a different matter. But it's not like that in the prison service. You can't pick and choose. You use what you've got. So anyway, he didn't necessarily batter him. What he did do was he'd, he'd, he'd very astute, right? He's been in loads of restraints. He's had loads of officers coming at him uh, with shields, the full gear on. He pulled helmets off, you know, pushed people to the floor. Um, staff were in and out, sweating, helmets back on. There was one lad, quite a big lad in the seg, about six foot two, not as heavy as me, but maybe 15 stone. Got back of his helmet and he had him, his head going down to his crutch like he was giving him a blowjob, you know. And this is what he's doing. because this, this is a powerful lad. And the other thing is, as a prison officer, you're told to taught to restrain people. Yeah. You know, arm locks and things like this. It's physicality. You are not restraining that lad. Yeah. You know, there's very few prison officers in the service, other than maybe the nationals. The nationals are sort of the elite of the prison service, mm -hmm. and they live for 
restraints and riots and things like that. They're mm. especially trained. Mm. So, you know, he, he just ragged people about. In the end, you know, the governor's like pleading with him, you know, what's his... He just said, look, ask me to move. Yeah. And I'll move. So that's what happened. Bloody hell. Basically, the, the staff come out of the cell, got his kit, and he moved into the special cell. Yeah. Right, a special cell. I don't know when he had these in America. I've seen solitary and the shoe and that in America, and they're pretty basic. Special cell, you might have one or two in prison located in the segregation unit. It's a bare cell. There's no toilet. You get a wooden plinth, maybe six foot by three foot, two inch off the floor. It's just a concrete cell. Uh, most of them have a hatch in the door mm. so you can pass things in and out. Yeah. And what they do have, usually, is a staircase at the side and they have observation points. Okay. You have to have governor's permission now. It used to be more regularly used, but now you definitely need governor's permission um, to put people in these special conditions. Yeah. And I think it's it's only 24 hours and then somebody needs to sign it up for another 24 hours. Right. So he's trotted in there like with whatever belongings he was allowed to take. I, I, I don't know why he took in there. Like I said, there's a staircase at the side and these observation points. And these observation points are in the ceiling. And they're there so you can see what's going on. Because if you have to go in that cell with Danny G or anyone else, you know, they might be stood off to the side, out your view with a weapon. Um, prolific self-harmers might well get put in uh, this special cell. So you need to make sure people are safe. And if you're going in there, that you're safe and you know what's going on. So that's where he's been put. So I was aware of this when I went home. Yeah. So we go back Saturday night, 8 o'clock, phone call from Strangeways, never got one. I did think, I knew what it would be about not answering it anyway, I answered the phone, so um, can you come in, please? We're having problems with Danny G. So like a lot of people in the prison, um, I mouthed off a bit about the tornado because what used to happen with tornado, when they went on a jolly, as it used to be, you know, off to some prison that's rioting. Yeah. There was a lot of time spent around, sitting around, playing cards, eating pizza, getting paid a, a decent rate of pay. Mm -hmm. And it was usually jobs for boys. Mm -hmm. So certain individuals would be off doing that all the time and the rest of you didn't get a look in. So seeing as I was one of those people who protested that, I figured I'd better um, turn in for this one. <laughs> now me, first thing I did when I got off the phone, um, I went to lab me and boom, vacated my bowels, you know, got rid of everything. Yeah. Uh, bit of adrenaline, bit of nerves, knew what I was going into, away we go. So I get I gets into prison, I don't know, half eight, nine o'clock. So they've, they've asked for 12 volunteers. Yeah, they've been phoning people up. So when it gets there in this room, there's 12 staff. There were more than 12 staff. There was a, a duty governor, which you always have on shift. Uh, there was a big daft scouse PO. Um... And there were some dog handlers and things like this. So you, you you got staff there, but there were 12 lads. There were no lasses there who turned in to what, deal with Danny What does PO mean for Americans? PO is a principal officer, right? In, okay. in in our prison system, English prison system, you've got um prison officer. Your, your next rank up is a senior officer. Mm. They're wing-based, so they're still on cold face, as it were. Yeah. They're still on shop floor. Um, then you've got a principal officer. He's sort of the link between a senior officer and a governor. I see. So every area, every wing, the segregation unit would have a PO. Yeah. But also another one of their jobs um, was duty manager, shift manager. Mm -hmm. 
So one day they might be looking after K-Wing, the next day they might be duty manager. Mm. And they used to call that position Oscar 1. You had an Oscar 1 and an Oscar 2. Yeah. And then above them, like I said, they were governors of various grades. So, very light-hearted, chitty chat going on in this room. A uh, few sexist jokes like there always is. So, I'm sort of looking around myself. Um, I'm not hardest man on the planet, Sean, right? But I have been about, I've got a toughness, I've played rugby all my life. So I'm looking about some of the people who were there and I'm thinking, right, Danny G, we, we don't know what state of play is till we have a briefing. So I got gitted up, so we're all sat there, full gear. We also wear balaclavas. Tornado, you've got all the gear, big boots, belt, the lot. And you've got helmet and a balaclava as well. So you are anonymous to the prisoner. So then we had a briefing. Uh, PO updated everyone. He'd been kicking off. He'd got a lighter in his cell and he was he was threatening to set the cell on fire. Now, like I said, there's no furniture in this cell, but he'd obviously got clothing. I don't know what else he got in there. Um, but he said he'd been kicking off, so the plan was to go in, strip search him, remove the lighter, clear debris from the cell, and then back out of the cell. So Simple as that. Well, simple as that. that. That's how it come across. And me, again, I'm thinking, right, Danny G, yeah, strip searching. Strip searching, very difficult. Under restraint, yeah. So someone of his size um, would be very difficult because he, he's not going to give his lighter up easily. So, again, lots of joviality. And the lighter's going to be inside his... Possibly. Prisoners will hold things inside the cell, up the back passage, drugs, lighters, things like that. At night, you know, they tend not to think that anyone's going to be coming in a cell, so they will remove them and leave them on the side till morning. You know, you don't have to sleep all night with your mobile phone up yet. <laughs> so there you go. So, again, you know, no illusions me. I'll be honest. I, uh, okay, this is how it happens. Then we get to the CNR coordinator. Oh, I need to tell you about the officers. So there's 12 officers. Six of these officers are CNR instructors. Now, a CNR instructor, control and restraint. That is what every prison officer, private or public sector, is taught. You have one week of your training where you're taught to restrain prisoners, um, working in a three-officer team. You're taught locks from various mixed martial arts, wrist locks, elbow locks, this sort of thing. It's, it's a safe method for staff and prisoners of moving people and restraining people. Let's go back to Charlie Bronson, old days. You know, he's in Belmarsh kicking off. You get six biggest hardest screws to go in. He's a street fighter. He's going to get battered, but they're going to get battered as well. This, the vast majority of prisoners, within a minute of kicking off or whatever, they're under restraint and away you go. So the six CNR instructors... So these guys have had extra training. They teach CNR to the rest of prison officers and the six ordinary prison officers. But we're all we're all kitted up exactly the same. Do you think the odds are in your favour? Me? No, I'm I at no point was I comfortable with any of this. And I'm not just saying that. Yeah. I'm a realist, me. Yeah. You know, so But twelve against one and six specially trained. Well, you you would think so. Um <laughs> <laughs> What can I say? Anyway, I need to I need to mention the uniforms as well because this is quite relevant. So, you've all seen riot police. 
riot police, prison officers on TV. They've all got the same helmets, same as the military. You've all got the same fire retardant overalls, your arm pads and that. Well, our instructors, CNR instructors, haven't. They've got like the uh, full SWAT gear. Um, they weren't supposed to have full SWAT gear. That's what the nationals wear. They're professionals, like I say. Yeah? The reason they've got it is because the CNR coordinator decided to spend a good bit of the budget on um, nice German helmets with goggles and fancy gloves and things like this. So they look a bit different to us, you know, a bit smarter. Yeah. Is that going to somehow put them at a disadvantage? Well, no. I, I need to tell you this for later on in the okay. story. Okay. So, you know, they, they look all... Theirs are fitted. Our overalls, one size. Yeah. So, geezer next to me, who's five foot seven and not 18 stone like me, has got baggy ass and... Yeah. Yeah? Anyway, we looked a bit ragmuffin. <laughs> so the CNR coordinator then gives, uh, gives the briefing. Right, we're going to go in. Um... Ten of us are going to strip search him and get the lighter. Two are going to go in with brushes and sweep all the debris up. Yeah. So he points at me and he says, you're taking a brush in. Debris duty. So, so I looked at him like, and, you know, I'm thinking it, it was done in a sort of sarcastic, funny way. But, you know, I didn't get on with a guy and he probably saw it as an insult. But, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I'll take the brush in. Man up, I've turned up, you know what I mean? I'm getting paid the same, I'll sweep up. So the briefing goes something like that. What's going to happen is all in single file, so that they're in single file, yeah? Yeah. In your German helmets, goggles, there's six of them lined up with a small shield, yeah? yeah? Hands on each of the shoulders. They're going to go in first. They're going to restrain him. Then we're the second human centipede behind. <laughs> Not like that nasty film. But we're the second human centipede, yeah? <laughs> With me and... I, I can't remember the other lad. I, d I do know him, his name. With the brushes. Yeah. We're at the back. So, we've been in the jail now four hours. I got the phone call at eight. Maybe three hours. I got the phone call at eight. It's now two in the morning. Mm. So, he lines up. Again, <sighs> nerves me. Played rugby all my life. Every rugby game I've played... Bad nerves to the point of almost being physically sick with adrenaline. So I've got my brush, you know, like you do. They've got the shields, and in we go, two human centipedes. So when they go steaming in, first thing um, that no one thought about, it was dark. Yeah, the lights were out. Now, here's the thing, you see. I've already told you we've got observation panels in this cell. Well, Danny G, being very athletic and very strong, somehow, as as crabbed his way up the walls of this cell and used wet toilet paper to cover the the observation points. Wow. Yeah, and he's also blocked the one in the door. But no one's thought about the light. So as we goes in, and I'm the last one in, and you know what it's like? People start pushing, so they've all piled in, and the light's out. I'm a bit of a giggle now, yeah? The lights come on. So I've got my brush on the floor, and I looks, and there's... Seven screws on Danny G's head and shoulders and one on his legs, yeah? So they got and, him. and a few others milling about. No, they hadn't actually got him. You see, here's the thing. Danny G's not normal. He was laid the other way. Mm. So there's seven screws on his legs and one on his shoulders. Mm. So I must have spent at least 10 seconds with the brush trying to get rid of Debray, and he's trying to get up yeah. already. Okay. So I'm on his shoulders with a lad called Gilly. Um He's a Yorkshireman like myself and a rugby player, so obviously he's up for it. 
So he looks up at us because everyone's now realising that actually they're not on his head. And he said something like, you dirty screwed bastards coming in when I'm asleep. Yeah. And now realisation is really sinking in <laughs> because he's trying to get up and there's probably nine or ten staff. So a couple of lads are out of there now. Yeah. They've got scared. I'd, listen, I'm focusing on his head and him trying to get up. Yeah. yeah. The pl- imagine, imagine this is the bed he's laid on. So this yeah. is three inch shy. So Gilly has, has got his wrist over the edge mm. and he's got his full weight on it trying to bend his wrist in some sort of lock. Yeah. Not a chance. It's not moving. He's still trying to get up. I don't know what happened next, Sean. It was one of those, like when you're a kid and you're all running and pushing each other out of the way, yeah, to get out of the cell door. I, you're laughing now. I, I can't exactly describe. I was one of the last, but I'm I'm facing in the cell. The last man out who's facing me, um, Danny G grabbed hold of his belt. So we have a thick belt. And it was honestly like one of those cartoons where the cat runs past the dog the dog grabs its collar and its legs and arms carry on running. Yeah, and he, he rags him back in, into so the cell. he managed to get up then? Oh, of course he, yeah. With nine people on him? Yeah. The the people on his legs and that, everyone's sort of up. I, I couldn't tell you that. 10, 15, 20 seconds. I couldn't tell you exactly what happened. How strong but, is this guy? He's very strong. Yeah. You know, he's, he's he was probably bench pressing a legit, 160 plus kilos and squatting is a big but yeah. it's his attitude it's his mental attitude he's yeah. not fearful of prison officers yeah. he's not fearful of staff you know yeah. he's been battered all his life and he's mad now oh, oh so this is just beginning yeah so he, he rags this guy back in so what ends up is four of us um, three were CNR instructors and myself literally wrestles this officer off him mm. and chucks him out of the cell yeah? Yeah. So then we're in a position, there's four of us with his helmets on and his balaclavas, with his fists up, and now it's serious. You can see it on his face. He's he's ready for it now. Yeah? Right. Ready to spar. Now, people will think, four staff, you've got helmets on and everything. I'll tell you now, they're not good odds. There's not a lot of prison officers would like to be in that position. I'm just being honest. Yeah? Because it was Danny G. Of course. Yeah. You know, okay. it's not some normal prisoner, this anyway. Yeah. Gilly, uh, he, he caught him one, chinned him. The floor is also covered in debris and it's wet. I don't know whether it were piss or whatever. But... Has he greased himself up like Bronson no, he did? No, he didn't grease him up. He didn't know we were going in. Okay. He didn't know we were going in. I'll yeah. tell you about the greasing up later. But there is water on the floor. You know, he's been on one. He's been pissed off. And the stuff that was in the cell is all over the cell. Normally, when they go in their prisons, they have nothing. But so So he slipped and... We run him like a pack of dogs. Now, it might have been 10 seconds, it might have been 30. Um, kicks, boots, fists, yeah. He covers up, we back out of the cell. Now, that's self-preservation, that. The paperwork we did at the end of the night reflected what happened. You know, I put, punched him four or five times. That officer put that, that officer put that, yeah? Yeah. So we're out of the cell now. We backs up. We've just given ourselves times to get out of the cell. When I turns around, we got a 10-metre walk to an office. It's an adjudication room, but it's, it's basically an office where we'd had the briefing. So that landing, apart from the governor and the PO, is empty. There's no eight staff. Me, 
as I'm taking my helmet off, I'm thinking, where's the other staff? Yeah? So we get in the briefing room, and three three of CNR instructors who weren't in there sparring with Danny G, one of them has got his overalls off already. Now, they take some putting on overalls. He's got his pads off, he's got his overalls off, and he's screaming at the PO, you need to get the nationals in. Right? So what he means is, I'm not going back in there, get the professionals in, we shouldn't have to do this. The other two, two of them were Southerners, no offence, but, you know. I, I remember I said... I said, I said no offence to James and Joe? No. No offence to any of you. I've, the, any of you? I've, I've, bloody witness. Listen, I, listen I, 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 oh, yeah, good lad. It's that, new, it's that neutral accent. Anyway, <laughs> what I'm saying is there were two of us Northerners there, you know, we've been in there like it would be. Um, so... I actually said to one of them, you're right, because he'd gone white. That's adrenaline. We know it is. You know, they're not exactly cowards, but adrenaline had got the better of them. They weren't for going back in. So they're screaming at the PO. The PO went absolutely fucking nuts. Mm. Big scouse lad. If I need you to go back in there, you're going back in there. We're not. What you've got to look at, you've got to manage prisoners like this. The first sign of trouble, you can't be calling for the nationals coming in, yeah? Yeah. Anyway... It all sort of calms down. Um, the big daft Scouse PO goes back to Danny G's cell and has a look inside. And this is the uh, the bit I was telling you about. And he's got a pair of goggles on, dancing about. You know, six six foot two, 17 stone, with the goggles on. So the PO says, Danny, give me the goggles. No, give me some burn. So there's two things going to happen here, right? He's, burn he's, he's cigarettes. Got, yeah. yeah. He wants a smoke. He's got a lighter. You know, he's got a lighter. Yeah. So, so he wants to smoke. So there's two things you look at here. We've been in. He, he's taken a few digs, you know. We've disrupted his evening. Do do you give him some burn and de-escalate the situation and get the goggles back? Or do you go back in there where half the team have already said they're not going back in <laughs> and send them back in for the goggles? <laughs> anyway, you, you've got to look at the de-escalation, right? Yeah. So PO, bit of negotiation, Goggles come out, bit of burn goes in. Yeah. Yeah. So then we has a debrief and we does his paperwork. So maybe, I don't know, four or five o'clock in the morning, we've all done his paperwork. They stand us down, which means you can go home. Yeah. Yeah, so for that, I'll, I've been paid nine hours at overtime rate or whatever. To be fair, after the debrief, three lads who were there, and they're not all like me, they said, you know, it was above their pay grade. They were tornado trained, but the, all three, you know, all three of them were decent officers, but they're not they're not the sort of officer who is going to be fronting people. They're not all like yeah, that. Yeah. They'd follow you into battle, mm-hmm. but they're not going to be fronting people themselves. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It takes all sorts. Mm-hmm. Someone with a bit of brawn and then someone who can uh, do the talking. So they stood down. So that was the Danny G incident. Is he free now, Danny G? I don't know. Was he doing a big one back then? Um, in, in and out of prison, I, I would think he'd be in and out of prison. The, the thing in Liverpool now, there's lots of youngsters coming on the scene. So, you know, I, I've sort of lost track of what's happening with that. But, um, you know, very naughty lad. The, the thing was later on, though, there, there was a lot of banter and storytelling and things like that. Mm. And it was about three years later, I was sat on healthcare in association with some prisoners, that's where, you know, prisoners are playing pool, watching TV. And an officer told me about this incident, this Danny G incident. 
as though he was there. And I know for a fact he weren't. So I sat for 20 minutes while he gave me all the details of the Danny G. And what you have to understand is, in that job, some people steal your lives. You know, I, did, I didn't interrupt him and I didn't correct him. Yeah, I didn't embarrass him. I let it go. Um, I did get pulled in the office not long after the incident and told to keep my mouth shut because uh, people were winding people up and people were getting upset. Yeah. So... Right, next and that was then. that. Tell us about greasing up. Greasing up, right. First come across that with young offenders or young persons at Forest Bank. Um, Charles Bronson, people like that, they've been doing it a long time. Young offenders, um, full of testosterone or whatever, always fighting, kicking off with staff. For American viewers, you just want to briefly explain... Charles Bronson, who he is. Right, Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson is probably the most infamous prisoner in the British prison system. He was an armed robber. Um, the, the dates might not be true, but he, he basically he got a four-year sentence for armed robbery, something like that. Got out of prison for not a long time, came back to prison, and then through his behaviour, he's been locked up ever since. Um, he's, he's been in years. He's done more than a life sentence. He's done more... He's never murdered anyone, but what he did is he's taken people hostage in prison. He's tried to escape from prisons. When I say that, he's maybe climbed up a fencing and got stuck in razor wire. I know he did that, I think, at Wakefield Prison. He got an extra three years on his sentence for that. So he's been a very, very disruptive prisoner. The vast majority of his time has been in solitary confinement. Um, physically, at his prime, he was... He was in the Guinness Book of Records for most press-ups in 24 hours, things like this, an insane fitness regime. He'd, he'd done some boxing on the out, so, he, you know, he was a brawler, a street fighter, and he's also been absolutely back, and he's been sectioned at times, and he's, he's been put in uh, mental hospitals in and out, I don't know, two or three times. He's still locked up now. At some point very soon... Someone's going to have to decide whether they're letting him out. Like I say, he's never murdered anyone. And he's been locked up, I don't know. Best part of 40 years, maybe. Give or take five years, I don't know. So, you know, he's an extremely um, disruptive prisoner. However, in his book, it, it says, you know, if he knew officers were coming to restrain him, if he'd kicked off, if he'd done anything, or if he was going to protest himself, he would cover himself in anything Young offenders will use Vaseline, shampoo, anything like that. You smear your arms, all your body. So when officers try and grab all the, uh, you know, like the old slippery fish, you can't restrain people. Very, very difficult. They'd also put you on the floor. You know, if you're going into a, a cell, young person or whoever, I'd be at the back of the cell and there'd be shampoo on the floor. Extremely difficult to deal with people like that. Obviously, very dangerous. Do you have any stories of particular individuals you had to go in who'd greased up young offenders all the time all the time yeah I remember um, one one manager I didn't particularly get on with um, but we're on the young offender wing we actually had two teams of officers kitted up and we had two prisoners in a cell so you have to understand th this is a planned intervention yeah so in the private sector and public sector if it's planned officers will get kitted up and they will have a camera person Somebody on camera filming it, that's for officers' protection and prisoners' protection. 
you know, you'll you'll speak to the prisoners, you'll try and de-escalate, maybe tell them, get back of the cell on your hands and knees so you can go in and cuff them, get them to back out of the cell. There's various techniques you can use to get people out. Anyway, so this, this manager is talking to these two prisoners and without sort of referring to the team or the guy who was coordinating it, she decided that she de-escalated and these two prisoners, she was going to lock them and let them out of the cell instead of the teams going in. So she did that. These two kids were covered in shampoo and God knows what. We chased them up and down the wing for a good 20 minutes. Um, you know, it, it was quite comical in the end and, and quite embarrassing as well. So, but there's lots of incidents, certainly with young offenders, they were at it all the time. Just want to ask you about strip searches then. Because, strip um, searches. I've seen your video on strip searches. I'm lucky because Arizona, before I got incarcerated, had the finger wave, which was the officers put the rubber gloves on and shoved a finger in the anus to see if there was anything in the cavity. But that got ruled unconstitutional. So the degrees of strip searches I had were all visual, um, ranging from just the basic, you know, drop your boxes, turn around, bend over, spread your buttocks and cough, to more of a scrutiny where they'll look in your mouth, ears, armpits, you have to pull your foreskin back and they're stirring it in, into your dick there with your foreskin pulled back. What is the routine in the UK system. Right. You're not going to hold me to this, are they? We, we don't want people like writing in and say he's missed this out and shit like that. Right, I'll tell you roughly, there's two levels of search and then there's strip search. There's two levels of search. There's a basic search, which is a pat down. So arms, back, you know, check the and belt. they're clothed. Down. They're clothed. You know, if they're going off to work, mm. making sure they're not taking anything off the wing. Or stealing food from the kitchen, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I've seen loaves of bread that big on the wing, so obviously that don't work too well, does it? Anyway, moving swiftly on. So, there's a there's a basic rub-down search. Again, at audit times, if you've got auditors in the jail, it was all done properly. Some of the time you'd see people go, next, you know, that sort of thing. Let's get to the strip searching, right? Strange ways, high security prison, everyone coming in and out of the jail is strip search. I saw the lad from Forest Bank saying at Forest Bank, they take your top off and they give it your back. I'll tell you what that's for. Although it is an indecent thing and it is embarrassing, the reason you, you search the top off and give them a T-shirt back is so they're not fully naked at all times. I know you've still got your out, etc. But also, let, let's look back. Me... I, I took no pleasure from strip searching people. If I was working overtime in reception, you knew you would be willy watching, right? You go to reception, you'd help the desk officer, and every prisoner, the ones you knew, new ones, tramps off the street, people who've been in police cells for three days would all be. Now you're starting to think now, aren't you? Not that pleasant. You know, you're going, Sean, and you had a routine. Me, I would take the lead. You'd try and make it or not pleasant, that's the wrong word, but you you, you try and do it um, with as least embarrassment to the person you're doing to as possible, yeah? Um, like I said, somebody who's been in police cells for three days would stink. Uh, they'd drop the boxes. You would obviously have gloves on, you know. They'd have had the same underwear for a week, this sort of thing. You can imagine, can't you, mate? 
Plus, you get people off off the street, people who were lived on the street. Um, the changing rooms by the end of the night would be stinking. But like I say, you do it as with with as much humanity as you possibly could. Um, not not pleasant, but it, it was part of the routine. As far as what is the actual routine? Well, I'm going to tell you. We 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 would get them to take the t-shirt off. Yep. You, you know, you can you look in the mouth, ears, air. You can do all that if you want. Take the t-shirt off, arms up. You can check under the armpits. Turn round. Then you give them the t-shirt back. Yeah, tracky bottoms off. I'm, I'm not going to do it. It's too much of a mouthful. Everyone would have the, the same thing with the socks. You'd tell them, you know, don't flick your socks. Take your socks off slowly. Turn them inside out. No flicking. What does everyone do? Flick. Flick. That's that. You get them to put them down. Yeah. I would then get them to take the boxes off. Give them, yeah. Most of them may get all their nuts. That's fine. You can see if there's anything there. Get them to turn round. Sorry. Show them the soles of your feet. Yeah. Bump. Job done. You'd be out there as quick as possible. Let them get dressed. There's no spreading of the cheeks and you squatting down having no. a look. Right, you, you could use a squat. You, you wouldn't do it in reception with people. You know, you certainly you're not looking in foreskin or any of that. Yeah. But you, you could get someone to squat. Um, but it was like, it, it used to be, like in strange ways, dedicated search team, they're specialists. They, they live and die for searching. Would get someone to squat if they suspected something was there, yeah. Yeah. But more so with the human rights and things, they're moving away from that. You know, yeah, that sort of yeah. thing. A, um, a lady wrote to me while I was in prison. Her brother was in prison in, in Japan. And she said in Japan, they have glass rods that they stick up the anus to see if there's anything in there. And you've got to go through that. Basically, if you've got anything inside you coming into British prisons, most prisons have a boss chair. It's well known that all prisoners know if they're coming in. It's like a metal detector. So you sit on it. And if you had some up your backside it, it would indicate what would happen not so much now years gone by it, it'd be very rare someone to try and bring a phone in like that because what you would have you'd have a couple of special dry cells in the segregation unit so if you come in and you indicated you had a phone we put you in a dry cell if you went to the toilet that phone would be captured it won't be going down the sewer or whatever mm. so you either surrendered it or you stayed in the seg. Now, if 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 your two cells are full, you're knackered. You know, um, I've been on visits when someone uh, has knowingly received a phone and drugs and inserted it, and you had no choice but to let it go back to the wing. So, what are the most common things prisoners store inside their bodies? Now, yeah. a lot of people are taking tobacco in. Tobacco because of the ban. Because they banned it. Um, I understand why they banned it. It's like the passive smoking thing. Yeah. You know. I was um, stuck in, cell, in cells with smoking. The problem is, right, the next yeah. customer, as the crow flies, um, lives 100 metres from me. I haven't seen him for a while. He's probably back inside. Last time he was out, the ban was just coming in. I, I was on the sick at the time. Um, and we both said, you know, people are just going to make a lot of money. As, as it is now, I believe... Uh, Rizzler paper. Everyone knows what a Rizzler paper is. You, you roll. They go for about a quid. Um, a skinny burn, a Rizzler paper with a bit of tobacco in, a fiver. Lighter, matches 20 quid. And I believe um, 50 grams of tobacco, maybe 500 quid. 
something like that. But I, I found out the other day from a lad that's just got out from the private sector that what they do now for everything, or the Arduino in Forest Bank, they have a bottle top, say off a lemonade, and that's what you're buying. They'll pack that with tobacco. That is a unit of measurement. Mm. So you pay for a bottle top or you put your drugs in it or whatever or your spice mm. and that's what they buy a bottle top. That's what I've heard. Um, but yeah, so tobacco, drugs. There's another lad I know. Um, I was in reception doing the strip searching. He came into prison. I hadn't seen him for a good while. We'll talk about dynamic security shortly. But I'd, you know, I got a rapport with him. He was a bad lad at Forest Bank. He'd been in the segregation when I were there, so I knew him well. I'd restrained him a few times. And surprisingly enough, when you have had that contact with prisoners, quite often you have a bit of a bond after. You know, they they know who you are. They know your name straight away. And you go from there. Anyway, he landed in strange ways. I was strip searching him. He says, can I have a word on quiet, Mr. S? Yeah. So pulls me all to one side. I'm in debt on out. says, yeah. He says, um... I've got loads of drugs. I says, where? He says, in my stomach. So I referred him to one of the nurses, did my paperwork. He went out. I, I don't actually know how they got the drugs out of him. They did get the drugs out of him. I don't, I don't think they opened him up, but he actually got um, extra time for bringing drugs into uh, Majesty's prison. The reason he brought them in, he, he committed an offence to get arrested to come into Manchester because he was in debt. And somebody said, you either pay this debt by bringing drugs in, you know, so there you go. So you mentioned dynamic security. What does that mean? Right, dynamic security. In in prison, every prison, the prisons you've been in, prisons worldwide, you've got procedural security, which is procedures, rules, regs that you stick to. You've got your physical security, which is obvious gates, bars, dogs, razor wire. And then you've got dynamic security. Dynamic security is a big thing. I try and mention it all the time. It is the relationships between staff and prisoners. So if you go back 45 years, prisoners were locked up 23 hours a day to get an hour's exercise. And there was no staff-prisoner relationships. A lot of animosity, but there was a lot of staff to deal with that animosity. So I started at Forest Bank. So when I first started, I were new, I were green. As you get to know people, they get to know you. You will know which guards, you know, I, I've, I've read your book. I've read your book, Sean, which was really good. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, Mrs. is now reading it and she don't read books. And th these guards you know, you know if two guards were on shift, you could get away with a bit more. You'd also know another guard was a bit dodgy and he might well give you a good twatting with a stick if you, if you got in his way or whatever. So I can try and blag prisoners as an officer but they'll see me every day they'll see me interact 100 times a day with different prisoners and they see what you like yeah you know they, they know the officers are fair they know the officers who's going to do jack shit for them so they keep away from them and go to you so you start building relationships so when i went to strange ways there, there was a lot of prisoners in there who'd been in forest bank and i knew them so it's them relationships and it's them relationships that make or did make prison a safe place because, you know, working on K-Wing, 200 prisoners, you know them all. You get somebody on the wing who's a bit of a dickhead who took a dislike to me. Somebody be having a word in his shell like, you know, he's all right, Mr. S, don't be like that or whatever. And it's how you interact through the day. L loads of interactions. 
a lot of them built up all years. Lots of repeat offenders. So, you know, they've been, you're right, how are you doing, lad? How are you doing that sort of thing? And that's what made it safe. You know, you, you get somebody come up to you on K-Wing, Mr. S, you might have a look in uh, 218. So there's two lads about to get to it. It's not because he's a grass, but he knows if they start fighting, we press an alarm bell, they're banged up for at night. That sort of thing, yeah? That's yeah. how it works. What happened in 215 at Strangeways? And grass equals snitch for the Americans. Yeah. I, I interviewed a lad snitch, from Manchester. Snitch. And um, all the Americans... It's like talking about marijuana. What's going on? Grass? We, they just didn't understand. Yeah, yeah. A snitch, grass. Yeah, same thing. But it's not. You know, it's it's self preservation for them. They want to go on exercise. They don't want banging up. So it's a nice day. Yeah. And they also, like I said, they get to know what you like. So I was known as a fair officer. I'd do my my fair bit. You know, if if somebody, for instance, um, let's say the mother was in hospital, ill. And they'd used all the phone credit up. I'm, I might, well, make them a phone call. Lots of officers wouldn't do that. Lots of officers would. You know, just let them know. He's stuck behind his door. His mother's got cancer in hospital. Shit. So it'd be a two-minute call. I've had a word, you know, blah, blah, blah. You'd, you'd, you'd help them out what you could. You know, you're not, you're not bringing phones in and stuff like that. Yeah. That sort of thing. But you build a relationship. And they do get to know what you like. And on K-Wing, it, it was a bit of my downfall because I ended up... Three landings on K-Wing, yeah, so you got about 70 prisoners on each. I'd end up doing work for the threes and fours when I was on the twos because somebody come in, somebody I knew had shout down, Mr S, will you sort this out for this lad? And, you know, it's just that's what prison officers are there for. Yeah. You have to realise, you know, prisoners can't do anything for themselves. They can't check the money. Um, they didn't used to be able to book visits or sort any problems out. They rely on you sorting them. And and those relationships made it safe. You'd have a laugh and a joke. I used to say me, best job I ever had, go to work, have a laugh and a joke, nobody gets injured, very cliched, go home, easy life sort of thing. In America, one of the control mechanisms that's used a lot, and I'm, I'm curious as to how much it's used in the UK, is the P-test, because, say, you know, the, the guards know everybody's high, 90% were high where I was housed. If a prisoner's acting up or if they didn't like that prisoner... They threatened to give them a P test, knowing they're going to, uh, you know, test positive for drugs. Then they're going to lose the visits. They're going to lose the privileges, such as being able to buy items from the commissary. Is that something that uh, is is in use in the UK? Right, piss testing. Yeah. Um, we we had at Forest Bank and Strange Ways MDT mandatory drug testing. So we had a team of individuals at both prisons who were trained to um, take piss tests. You know, a lot of paperwork involved. Um, you, you've got a sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? You, there's a chain, uh, a chain of evidence. So if you take a piss test, it's all got to be signed and dated and dotted, and there's a chain of evidence. That is dictated to by the prison system, both at Forest Bank and Strange Ways. MDT might have to do 80, for instance, random tests a month, which is literally a random test. They'll get a list produced. And then they got four weeks to test them prisoners. Yeah. There was, we used to have um, suspicion. You could fill a form in for suspicion. So if there's two clowns on the wing, you know, being dickheads and that, and you can stink weed, you might well put um, a report in for a suspicion test. And the MDT, if they've got time, might well come and test them. As far as punishment goes, back in the day, I hate that, but 
<laughs> in years gone past, governors, prison governors could add extra days. So if you got, say, a positive test for cannabis or grass or weed, does that cover the American yeah, the American yeah, market? Yeah. Um, they could, they might give you up to 18, 22, 24 days. There was a maximum, yeah? If you if you come clean, so you're you're on your nicking now, you've been placed on report, you're in front of the governor. Sean, uh, positive piss test, how do you plead? Guilty. I had a joint, Gov, I'm sorry. You might get seven days. You might get three days. You might not get any added days. You might get commissary canteen over here where they can buy food and products, toiletries. Is that what we're talking, commissary canteen? Yeah. Yeah. So you might lose that. If you went not guilty, they can do a second test. If that comes back positive, the prisoner can have their own test done. They can pay through their solicitor and have their own test done, a third test, which goes to a specific laboratory, obviously. They don't get the solicitor and say, go away and test this. So if, if you play that out, now people might play it out because they're out in eight weeks and it might take 12 weeks to do all three tests. But if you played that out, you might well get the max 24 days. Heroin, smack, skank, what they call it in America. Yeah, it's the same. Same? Yeah, yeah. You know, heroin. I think um, it was up to four, 42 days. Okay. So when I was at Forest Bank, there was a young offender. Now, young offenders used to smoke a bit of weed. Um, not so much smack, heroin, stuff like that. All young offenders were anti uh, smack, heroin, brown, whatever you want to call it, yeah? But we had a, a young offender there. He was quite violent, so he got in a lot of fights. He came in on a three-month sentence and served three and a half years with added days because he, he was on report every week and they were just giving him added days, added days, added days, added days. In the end, I think the parole board, uh, probation or whatever, they come to some sort of agreement to get him out of jail because the way he was going, he was never going to get out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nowadays, um, probably what, I don't know, may maybe 2.10, maybe a bit before, a bit after. It, it was rude that, it was ruled, sorry, that prison governors couldn't give added days. So what prisons had to do, if someone got a positive piss test, they'd have to have um, a district judge in. He used to come in once a month, I think. And he would, he would sit and those tests would have to go in front of him and the district judge was the only person who could give added days. Very long process, very cost. Every prisoner would get a barrister in or a member of his legal team, cost the prison service thousands. And for the actual amount of people who were getting punished, you know, yeah. you, you've got to look at it and think, is it worth it? Yeah. I have been in prisons where there was a black market in piss that was drug-free. And, you know... Generally, though, when you had to do these pee tests, you got to do it with the guards staring right at your dick to make sure that you're not switching anyone else's pee in for, for your pee. Is that is that the same here? Yeah, well, I did, I did a bit of MDT um, before I left Strange Ways. Similar sort of thing. Strip search. You know, you, you check there's no glove attached to the bollocks yeah. so they can squirt it in. Yeah. Lot, lots of different ways of doing it. And pe people will still try it on. You're watching them. Um, it's you know it's got to be quite a clinical process. Yeah, I, I will actually know one story on on this subject. Yeah. So we had an officer who I worked with at Forest Bank, 
who eventually got seven years for bringing heroin, smack, skank, whatever you want to call it, into the prison. There was a prisoner on the wing that we worked on, B2. Now, I worked with this lad, and he got on well with prisoners, not not in a creepy way. He just had his own style. You know, I got on well because I were, they say how you were. So I, I didn't suspect he was doing anything. But what was happening, we had um, quite a well-known Salford drug dealer on that wing who'd approached him and said, you know, I'll bung you whatever, six, seven hundred quid a week if you bring me smack in. So they got this nice little deal going. And then this drug dealer had a random drug test and he was using as well. So he went to one of the wing cleaners for or orderlies for the audience in America. They're prisoners who are picked out for their attitude, behaviour or whatever. They get a set of green trousers, a pair of work boots, a light blue shirt. They get paid weekly and they will work on a wing, sweeping, mopping, cleaning the showers. Like trustees. Trustees, yeah. That sort of thing, yeah. Trusted to work. So he went to one of these for a sample of piss and I don't know how he delivered it. He did deliver it, but he, he obviously paid him because he was using. What the drug dealer didn't know was that the cleaner was also using. So he bought a a sample of piss and used it so when it come back positive he went absolutely bananas on the wing he kicked off he ended up getting restrained and he ended up in the block segregation shoe whatever you want to call it solitary so he's down there now prisoners know what's going on they know bent screws they know you know who to approach who not to approach so another prisoner on the wing who was also a drug dealer approached him and said, look, I know he was paying you X amount. I'll give you a little bit more. You start bringing in for me. So he thought, yeah, I'll do that. The guy down the block, he found out, and I don't know whether he bubbled him, somebody bubbled him, they grasped him, and police were involved at a later stage, but basically he was stopped coming into the prison, and he had a shoe full of heroin, and he ended up with seven years. Bloody hell. So let me ask you this then. A lot of people have said that when the P-tests were introduced before the P-tests, weed was a drug of choice, but because it stays in the system for over a month, people switch to heroin to avoid the detection because heroin only lasts a matter of days in the, in the P. And now we've got spice. Now we've got spice, in, right. In the, in the P-test at all, which is, it, it seems it doesn't, to me... It doesn't, but do you know what? I think it's it's not a consequence. Like, a, like a, the amount of people who actually get caught drug testing, I mean, positive P-tests, as you want to call them, is minimal for me. It's, you know, it might as well be redundant. Um, what years were you a guard? A prison officer. <laughs> I think I started at Forest Bank in 2-1 till about 2-4. I started in strange ways. April 2-0-5 to um, September 2-15. Did you come across any high-profile prisoners? Um, quite a few high-profile prisoners. There's one or two mentioned in the book. Right, if I explain, um, there's a lot of prisoners in the book that are anonymous, yeah? And and, and this, is, this is how I looked at it when I worked with a writer. The fire starter who's in the book, right, there's a guy in the beginning who is a prolific self-harmer and sets cells on fire. 
as a prison officer dealing with things like that, you know, can be quite stressful and quite difficult. You don't need to know who that guy is, yeah? And lots of people in that book. You didn't need to know who they were, but what I wanted to put across is what you have to deal with. Part of the thing with high-profile prisoners is, is, is how that affects you. So, obviously, you know, Mark Bridges mentioned in the book, I would not want to give kudos to anyone like Mark Bridger. Um, we had Dale Cregan. What was Mark Bridger's story? He he, he basically um, killed a young girl. He, you know, at the time he said he'd run her down or whatever. Horrendous for the family. So it was about dealing with people like him. You know, I've seen... Well, it might sound sad, I don't know. You you tell me. There's um there's a couple of programmes where they, they've done documentaries and one of them I've watched about five times with that guy. Because I worked with him for 10 months and I, I didn't realise how much he affected me. And one of my friends, one of the nurses who worked on there, she said the same. When she'd actually left the prison, she didn't realise how much that guy had got under his skin and how much she hated him. You know, these high-profile prison prisoners are not treated with kid gloves that's wrong the, the worst thing for the prison service would be if mark bridger killed himself before trial so he was he was put on healthcare where i worked and not protected that's a wrong word sean you know you got to look after him and give him everything he was entitled to but also keep him safe people won't understand that but if you're going to do the job particularly where I worked on healthcare, we had all manner high-profile prisoners come on and come off, then you have to be professional. Was it the nature of his crimes that affected you or was it the actual dealing with him and his energy? All of it, you know. Um, what was it about him that affected you then in, in, in today? He was uh, very manipulative. I could see that, you know. Um, he'd have staff talking to him. Let's get something right. These people, if you see it, the psychologists, people better than me and more qualified than me, will tell you they're very manipulative. They dark people. I saw one guy say he was probably one of the 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 worst killers he'd ever come across. You know, just just by his actions and how he behaved and that. And they'll draw people in. Prison officers are normal people at the end of the day. While we're on that subject, we'll stay on the high profile. But as a prison officer, like I've said, Sean. They're not all like me. They're not six foot, 18 stone. There is some lads bigger than me, but not a lot. There's a lot of lasses in there. There's a lot of sort of middle-aged, older people in there. So how I would put it to you was, how you would view prison officers. You imagine a wedding. You know, one of your families, a wedding you've been to. You've had a good day. All the friends have come at night, right? So bam, you stop the music. Anyone under 18, get rid of them. Anyone over... 68 now, because as a prison officer, you're capable of working at 68, which is disgusting. Get them out of the room and have a look what you've got. You know, you've got your your 50-year-old auntie who's lovely and does baking. She's a prison officer. You know, her husband likes a few pints. He's a prison officer. Your nephew plays rugby. He's a big lad. He's a prison officer. They're not all like me. They're not all big with bald heads. They're just normal people. Yeah. Civil servants, end yeah. of the day. Yeah. So, you know, some of them are vulnerable some do get taken in, you know. It, it's it's a very difficult job, and and that's what I wanted to put out there. It is a difficult job, and the normal people doing that job. No amount of training will, will ever prepare anyone. 
you know, that was that was a bit of criticism that was levelled at me. Somebody said about training, you know, you, you should have never been a prison officer because you've been in front of a judge. Well, I were in front of a judge for fighting, you know, when I was younger. Yeah. But that that didn't disqualify me from being a prison officer. You know, you do need tough people. You need people who've been about a bit, people who can talk. It, it is, it's actually the team. As individuals, prison officers, if we take K-Wing, when I was on K-Wing, there were 40 staff, yeah? 20 of them staff, fantastic staff, 10 pretty good staff, and 10 staff who weren't good. But as a team, together... We got a really good reputation and it worked really well, and that's what it's about. So, which other high-profile ones were there? Um, Any like Moore's murderer or Fred and, and West? Any of that that kind of level? Well, I, I don't know whether being down here, there's a lot that were Shipley, wasn't he up here? Yeah, he was. I, I had nothing to do with it. Shipman, Shipman yeah, he, you know, he was on healthcare before I went on. Horrible person again. Yeah. You know, how many people did he kill? Like. Hundreds He's and probably the most prolific serial killer. I, I don't. I, I recently saw a documentary. They, they don't know for sure, um, but it could be one of the most prolific serial killers ever. Yeah, you know. But but it does affect you. There was lots of high-profile prisoners to the northwest and above. The reason um, Strange Ways, I believe, was made high security prison or whatever outside London. Uh, majority of Catty prisoners are from Manchester and Liverpool. You know, there's some serious people up there. So, th- so there were lots of people who were high profile to the area. Prisoners and staff would know some of them coming in. Kitty killers. Um, we had we had one lad who was labelled a Facebook killer. You know, lots of them that that you might not have heard of because of the locality. Yeah, that sort of thing. And also, it depends where they get arrested. Yeah. If somebody from London kills someone, shoots off to Scotland, he might end up in our jail. So, you mentioned you started out your book with the fire starter. Are you right to tell us that story? Yeah, Thomas Riley. That's an alias, you see. Okay. Um, you don't need to know the lad's name. What you want to tell me about the fire or what? the whole story? Right. Okay. This lad, um, pretty much detested. He was on healthcare when I first went on. Um, some months before I went on, um, what he'd done is um, on his canteen or commission, commissary. 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 Yeah. I don't think I can say that. Canteen. Inmate store. Inmate store. Okay, we're yeah. going inmate store. He bought some sugar. The thing about this guy is that people have to understand, um, people believe all self-harmers are manipulative, which is not so. You know, there is a big percentage in the prison system that you self-harm to manipulate positions and manoeuvre themselves around the jail. This guy was a self-armour, period. If he got pissed off, fed up, someone had a go at him or whatever, he would self-arm. Not to, like, manipulate anything. He wasn't going anywhere. He was on the healthcare, on strange ways. He was a personality disorder. Some of the most difficult prisoners in the system have personality disorders. So this guy, personality disorder, so someone had pissed him off. Anyway, he, he bought some sugar, a couple of bags of sugar, tried his tacky, tr- tied his tracksuit bottoms up with shoelaces, filled them with sugar and set himself on fire. Um, you know, sugar melts, made a mess of his legs. His legs were a state. I can't even describe them. 
parts of his calf muscle were missing, heavily scarred. He he he, he didn't walk properly because there'd been that much destruction to his legs. Now that he he hadn't manipulated nothing there. It was an inconvenience for staff putting out a fire and him going to hospital and everything else. But when he got pissed off, I, I said in the book, you could put him in the penthouse suite of the top hotels in the world. If someone pissed him off, he'd cut up and set him on fire. You know, that's how bad he was. So one particular night, he's got form for self-fires and he was a very assaultative prisoner as well. I know that's not a real word, but it's a word I use and you know what it means, don't you? <laughs> yeah. If I said somebody was assaultative, you know, they assault people. So he was, he was a dangerous fucker. And like I say, personality disorder, very much disliked by prisoners and staff. But um, I didn't have a soft spot for him. That's the wrong word. But it did make me laugh at times. So this particular night, I am on nights. With a little Irish nurse, we'll call her. And when he used to come on shift, on the night shift, first thing you do, you go round, bed everyone down, as it were. I don't know whether they... Uh, Guards in America, like the prison officers in this country, go round, have a look, make sure everyone's there. Evening head count. Evening head count. You do a roll count, make sure you've got the bodies. On healthcare, small community. You're right, John? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're all right, sorted, got a toilet roll, yeah. On the healthcare and the segregation unit, oh, I'm not sure about segregation unit. Certainly on the healthcare, we had a hatch in the door. Um, normal prison doors. Just like everywhere in the world, just a big metal door, little spy panel with glass in that you can see in, check on, so you know when you open what you're, what you're opening up to. So we got a hatch there, so you could maybe pass them a brewing night if they weren't sleeping or whatever, being a soft ass. Anyway, there's, there's something about him this night. So I got the hose pipe out. I used to turn the lights off on the landings, me, walk about. You know, it was, it was no mad. You could see where you were going, but they couldn't particularly see out. So I got the hose pipe out, ran it out outside his cell. Uh, had a chat with nurse, said he's on one. So, you know, pretty standard evening, settled everyone down, did the checks we had to do. Middle at night, uh, music goes up a little bit and people have to understand this, that the music didn't go up to alert us that he was up to something. This is what the guy's like, yeah? So I goes to his cell. So, are you allowed to mention the song? I've already mentioned it once. You're not getting in trouble with copyright and things like that. As long as you don't sing it. Okay, I'm not going to sing it. So, <laughs> Prodigy, fire started, he has got on, but he's facing the window. So, as as I'm looking at his bike, if I give you a description, now, I've got his bike so I can see him. He's got his bed to this side. There's a like a, a side here. Um, his toilet's down here. His stereo's on there, and he's giving it the big licks. Yeah. So while while I'm watching, he gets his lighter out that he must have had. They weren't allowed lighters at this time, so he'll have had it plugged in the day. And he starts setting himself on fire. You know, bottom of the track is, here we go, click, click, click. So I dropped the hatch, got a hose pipe. What do we call him? Thomas. Let's keep him as an alias. So Thomas. So I shouts, Thomas, 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 two or three times. Then he turns round, just starting to go, his track is, little bit of flame, looks at me, bam, give it him straight in the face with a hose pipe. Up and down his body. He's not said anything at his point. He's looking at me, 
pissed off because I've caught him. Salt the cell, hose pipe off, bam, hatch up into the office. So he does the paperwork, says to the nurse, she says, what's going on? Fire, starts panicking. It's all right, dealt with. So I phoned the Oscar. He's the night manager we've also mentioned as a PO. We've had a fire on healthcare. Why don't you press the bell? I caught him at it. The cell's soaked. He's still got the lighter, but there's nothing to light. When you come up, sign it up, do the paperwork, etc. So they did. Sometime later, the Oscars come on, dropped his arch, had a chat to him. He went for talking to them. Piss wet through. They came in. Do you want to move him cell? I says, I, I ain't got a cell. We didn't have a cell to put him in. Um, what about the lighter? I says, well, he says, fair dues. Make sure your paperwork's right. They signed it all up. When they'd gone, emergency cell bell. For the Americans, I'm sure they... Oh, I don't know where you have these. Um, there's a cell bell, which is just a button inside every cell. It's for emergencies. You press that, a buzzer will go on out like the cell. I'm in the office. It'll sound and you'll hear it. So Yeah, we didn't have anything like that. Nothing like that. So, you know, I goes to his cell. What's up, Thomas? Mr. Samworth. And, and this is a thing as well, right? Dynamic security. Mr. Samworth, not fucking prick, screw, dickhead. Mr. Samworth, I'm oh. fucking freezing. <laughs> Would you like some bedding, Thomas? Uh, yes, please. Begrudgingly, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it goes off, gets him some bedding. Johnny Boy, the lighter. I've used his name now nearly. Would you like a cup of tea? Yeah. Where's the lighter? Gives me the lighter. Give him a cup of tea. Lots of people wouldn't have done that. De-escalation. Away you go. Quiet night after that. That's a happy ending. Happy ending. But, um, you know, he's a guy, again, people would question. If somebody was caught self-harming anywhere in the jail, there would be an alarm bell to alert staff. They would lock people up. And if it was bad enough, they would. a nurse always attends. Any emergency, a nurse attends, then that person might well get moved to healthcare. Myself and KK, one of the nurses, saw him cut his throat because um, he was pissed off again. I've seen him cut his arm down to wood, you know, six big cuts down to wood because he was pissed off. People had said, did you press a bell? No. But time Stafford had got there, you know, he'd have either got rid of the blade, put it back in his mouth, up his ass, whatever he was going to do with it. And if you stopped him self-harming, once he got a minute, you know, you back, he'd do it again. Mm. So he was one of them one percenters. He didn't have the physicality of Danny G. You know, he wasn't, he was very assaultative and dangerous. He didn't have that physicality, but he could disrupt that unit, you know, and, and obviously there's other people there and it detracts from their care. Did you encounter any corpses? Yep, seen a few dead bodies in prison. Uh, sounds very callous that it's not at all. Um, the one lad found on healthcare, um, not hanging so much as he'd clotheslined himself. By that I mean, when I found him, we had we had this prisoner. Um, he he come into prison been very disruptive and ended up in a segregation unit, solitary, the shoe or whatever. 
and he'd gone out to hospital because he thought possibly he was ill. Shit everywhere in the cell. And he was Polish, so there was a language problem. So he went to hospital, he was on a bed watch, and I think he was on a six-officer bed watch. Normally, a bed watch is where a prisoner goes out for medical attention and might well stop in a hospital. Usually, it will be in a room separate to other people, but you could be on a ward, and depending on their security risk, for instance, somebody who got two weeks to go might be a two-officer. Somebody um, extremely violent could... And any number of officers, up to 12 officers. So this guy is on a bed watch, I think six officer bed watch. He's disruptive. He's trying to smear shit on officers. He's trying to throw shit at nurses. Violent tendencies. Very difficult situation, that, because you are in a public place. <clears throat> so he came back into prison and he ended up on healthcare. He was very difficult to manage. There was a language barrier, but he was very unpredictable. Very hostile, very aggressive. Anyway, he'd, he'd been on there three, four months, something like that. He was he was due in court. The, the reason he, he'd come back to us from court, his offence was carrying a knife. He would have probably served three months and been released. But because of his lack of cooperation in court, even though I had an interpreter, the judge sent him back to prison. Anyway, no one suspected that he was at any risk of harming himself suicide or anything like that no special measures other than he was on an unlock protocol um, I'm sure you have these in America basically the segregation in healthcare you, you have a protocol there's always a minimum of two staff to open anyone up but he was on a three officer unlock so in order to get him out so he could collect his meal you need to have three staff so if you only had two staff you'd have to take the meal to him anyway I went this particular morning and He'd, he'd clotheslined himself. What do you mean by that? What he'd done, he'd, he'd tied a shoelace. There were barred windows in healthcare. They had perspex, so they were they were like four or five bars across the window, um, square bars, and perspex in between them, as it were. So he tied a shoelace like a clothesline from each of the end bars, and he'd leant against it, pushed against it. Now, th this could this could have been death by stupidity. Again, no disrespect there. You know, it weren't round his neck. He hadn't dropped and hung himself. He, he could have possibly been testing things. Um, and I think it's vagal nerve or something. I, I think at his coroner's report, he caught that vagal nerve. And if you do catch that, medical persons, please forgive me if I ain't got the name right, then you would pass out. Put you to sleep. Put you to sleep. So he was in a position um, like a ski jumper, when he leaves a jump. He was leant forward. You know, his feet were flat to the floor. He was leant forward. He got his arms down by his side and his jaw was fully extended. It was horrendous. The thing about this prisoner I forgot to mention, I have never smelled anything like him in my life. His body odour was not of this world. From being in hospital to being in healthcare, I, I honestly never smelled anything like it, Sean. We used to get him out as regularly as we could bearing in mind he was difficult to deal with, shower him, and we'd have to put him in another cell and have clean clothes in there in order to clean that cell. The, the stench was horrendous. Anyway, um, he was stiff as a board, well dead. I got my mate, Debbie, give her a shout because she's my mate, and we got him down. 
commenced CPR, the nurse turned up. And here's the thing, right? He, he was dead. Yeah, really dead. But we, we did CPR. That's what you do. A lot of people are just, you know, what, what are you fucking doing that for? He's dead or whatever. That's what we started doing. The nursing staff didn't complain about that. The nurse who attended, who was called Hotel One, that that nurse attends all the, yeah, all the incidents. No one complained. Um, the stench was horrendous. It was probably I described the worst day of my prison career, and that's not that's not just the dead body. It's how people behaved, um, how it was managed. Again, which was nothing to do with the healthcare staff. It was not a good day. Um, you know, it affected me quite bad. However. No, nobody took any time off. You know, we were all there next day at six o'clock. What I will say, interestingly enough, two guys separately who attended that incident. What happens um, in any British prison, private, public sector? If there is an incident like a death in custody, self-harming, a fight or anything, someone presses an alarm bell, which alerts staff on other wings that there is an incident happening. So somebody pressed the bell on healthcare, so staff attended from other wings. Now, because it was death in custody and not a fight, people had come on, you know, they'd look, see what was happening and leave that wing. So two lads separately, after they read the book, both messaged me and said, you know, that, that day affected us. So they came on, they saw us working on him and they left. And they both went to another wing. I think it was G-Wing on the exercise yard. One of them says to the other, did you smell that smell? And he says, you know, one of them were having a fag. One of them were physically sick, which made the other sick. And both of them said they couldn't get, you know, they couldn't get out of their head for weeks. And they're two guys who have attended, seen the body and left. You know, so... There was two staff on there, one who was sent home. He was a young lad. He was, he was an ex-squaddy, and you could see he was in physical shock. He was white. An SO come on, Kev, who was a really good guy. He was all about staff. Took him to one side, made sure he was home, made sure he got a lift home, looked after him. There was also a dog handler who, at the time, wasn't directly involved, but I spoke to him some months later. He sort of questioned me when I was coming into work and said, are, are you all right? And I says, yeah, I'm all right. What, you know, he says, that incident. I says, has it bothered you? He says, I'm having nightmares. But, you know, there was, there was no aftercare, no nothing. So, but what was really bad, and it was one of the things that made it a bad day, the lad who was in shock was ridiculed by other staff who were there. Mm, they were yeah. taking the piss this macho bollocks, it's just a fucking dead con. What's his fucking problem needs to get a set? Mm. You know, and that that just added to the woes for me. You know, the incident itself is bad enough. Any death in custody will affect staff. Yeah. However, how people behave sometimes can make things much worse. What I will add, because again, I, I was criticised of, you know, how I discussed and reported this incident. It was a good few months later I actually attended coroner's court. And at this coroner's court was this lad's sister. So I was one of the last people on the stand at coroner's court. And the coroner said to me, we've got this young lady here. She's been here for two weeks now. You know, her brother's died in a British prison. And no one has explained to her yet 
why he was on an unlock, why he was on healthcare and his behaviour. So it was my job to sort of explain to her. And I did talk, like we're talking now, it was on a stand, coronary, I did talk to her and she had an interpreter, she understood some English and I explained her brother's behaviour. And afterwards, the solicitor come up, the prison barrister, and said, you know, she come to me and thanked me for what you'd said. Yeah. So it does affect us, and I do understand that there's also other people, you know, families of prisoners yeah. that are going to be affected. You said about the things she was wondering about. What what I was wondering about was how he had shoelaces, why he was allowed to have shoelaces. Right, here's the thing. When they come on healthcare... If if someone came on healthcare, we had a standard protocol. We would strip search him, make sure they got no weapons. They weren't allowed razors. In the morning, we would give a prisoner a razor and put a little sign on his door saying there was a razor in there and we would take it back. We would take the shoelaces off him, belts and everything else. Like I say, this guy will have gone through that procedure, but three months later, you know, no signs of... Um, no signs that it was at risk of suicide or self-harm. This is another thing. It was a big shock finding him, Sean, because there'd been no signs there. I never for one minute thought that that guy was going to harm himself, and nobody else did either, you know. So, yes, when they first go into segregation units, health cares, they are strip searched, they'll have belts taken off them, things like this, anything that they could make a ligature with. We also have cells in healthcare that used to be called anti-ligature cell. There's no such thing. They were safer cells. They were safer than a normal cell. He was in a standard prison cell because no one considered he was at risk. So you said there was other situations with corpses. This one was the worst of your life that you saw, the one you've described. How how bad were the other ones? Um, There was um, a young lad at Forest Bank... I've I've also seen, if we can mention this after, how it has affected other staff who've attended, particularly nursing staff. Nursing staff have a horrendous time at coroner's court every time there's a death in prison. You know, I've never met a nurse who did anything other than try and save lives. So I was at Forest Bank and there was a nurse and at Strange Ways, we had a constant obsell. I don't know where you have them in America. It's basically a cell. Well, most, in fact, having seen the prison documentaries on America, most cells in America just have bars, don't they? There's no walls and doors. Plexiglass. Yeah, so you can see in. So our constant watch cell, if you've got someone who was violent or at risk of suicide, self-harm, killing cells, a constant watch cell, you'd have plexiglass perspex and bars so I could see in, and you'd have someone 24 hours a day observing them and taking notes. Um, So at Forest Bank, very similar, we had a big cell. Again, there was nothing in it. It was like a special cell, but it had a big, big window, maybe a metre and a half, be a metre, something like that, that was perspex. So you were looking directly in, no bars, no nothing. And we had a young lad in there. He had been in the segregation unit. Very difficult prisoner to manage. He looked about 14. He was about 19, 20, and we had had to restrain him a couple of times when he was trying to strangle himself. Um, I, I think once we caught him with 
he got a bed sheet and he had tied it around his testicles and penis, you know, almost pulling them off, as it were. So this is a very disturbed individual. The reason he'd been in the segregation is because when he'd first come into prison, he'd gone to a normal wing and it had taken 12 staff to remove him to the segregation unit. This is a lad who looks 14, who's about 19, five foot two, you know, baby face, horrendous strength, horrendous strength. Sometimes the mentally ill people have got this the the worst strength. The worst. So he's incredibly unwell, but incredibly violent. So because of, of this incident of tying the, yeah, not pleasant, is it? He was in the constant on healthcare and they only used to have one officer on healthcare during the day and during the night so as I knew this lad I was asked whether I would do a couple of night shifts so I was going to sit there I can't remember I think we probably did 12 hours six while six observing him you know I got a bit of the old dynamic security going on Mm. he'd been in the seg a couple of weeks I knew him he knew me we could have a conversation I might have done more than a couple of nights I can't remember now. Anyway, there was a nurse on there, lovely nurse. And the first night, about two o'clock, she says to me, do you want to have an hour? Because it it can get incredibly boring. You know, you start nodding or whatever. So she gave me an hour, have a walk around, chat to the other officers, sit in the office, have a brew, whatever. Um, It was the second or third night that I was doing this shift. I need to tell you what he got in this cell. It was a strip cell. He got nothing in there. He probably had a pair of boxes on and what was called a suicide blanket, anti-ligature blanket. Extremely tough blanket, thick, allegedly that people can't make nooses or ligatures out. Um, So he'd got one of them, toilet roll, something like that, and his boxes on, so there was nothing else in there, yeah? So that, that's quite important, that. Anyway, I've been chatting to him a couple of nights, no matter. This particular night, he's chatting to her. Are you going to come and sit down, miss, and talk to me? Yeah, I'll come and sit down. She sat down. I went for a brew. Uh, only been gone five minutes. Not even five minutes. Bit of a scream. So what he's done, he, he's been under the blanket. He got a ligature uh, made of sheets. He'd put it around his neck under the blanket. So he's looking, waited till the nurse was on there. He got his legs up to his knees. He got the ligature around his foot. He'd removed the blanket. She'd seen it and he'd extended his foot. So it obviously tightened on him. By the time we got in there, um, we didn't carry fish knives at Forest Bank. The nurses, I believe, did. We had them at Manchester, strange ways. A fish knife for the American audience and the British audience. It's a knife. It's got like a fish mouth with a very sharp blade. And what they're for is the anti-ligature. So if someone's got a noose tight around the neck, you can hook it under, mm-hmm. extremely sharp, and cut them down, hanging situation. So it was remove this ligature. It might have been a minute, minute and a half, very difficult. Anyway, he was he was unconscious paramedics called he went to hospital and he died sometime later Mm. i can't remember whether it was you know maybe a couple of days or whatever there was some damage uh that nurse 
you know, I, I don't know whether it, she left the prison. She was obviously really traumatised and I, I don't know whether she left nursing or not. One of the things I noticed is like the gallows sense of humour that the prisoners cultivate. And then when I read your book, I saw how you guys had your own brand of that. And there was a situation where you have touched on what we call shit slingers, where you took the old Dirty man. Protest. You took the old man to medical. Yeah. You want, can you tell us that story? Oh God. Well, I can now actually. Um, should we call him Mr. Smith to be polite? He's yeah. de- he's dead now. Yeah. He's a no percentage prisoner. Again, it's something I used to say. This. So we've got this guy. He's old. Yeah. He's not a physical threat. However. I need to go back on that. Let's just say he'd, he'd, he'd been in our prison a few times mm. over a couple of years. He looked 90. He was probably 60. And he was a diabetic, drug user, alcoholic. Extremely abusive, threatening, but no physicality to him. Um, the, the few times we had him in prison, he was either in segregation unit where they actually have dirty protest cells it's now called dirty conditions dirty protest dirty conditions that's where people use shit feces excrement whatever you want to call it to make our job more difficult to protest you know it's just it's it's not pleasant you'll have seen it yourselves a lot of people can't tolerate it. A lot of people don't understand it. But this guy was all about shit. He would throw it at everyone, poke it through his doors, etc., etc. Again, it was another guy who didn't present a physical threat to officers. You were never going to be laying hands on him because of his, his frailty when he was in prison and his looks, basically. And also, a lot of his, when he was on healthcare in particular, a lot of his aggression and malice was aimed at the nurses. Mm. However, he did some years before stripe a nurse in a Manchester hospital. When I say stripe a nurse, he had a blade, he was taken to hospital from prison and he he opened a nurse's face. Stripe me when you've got two razors next to each yeah. other. Yeah. It might not have been stripe, but it might have been a single blade, but he so opened a nurse's face up. up. Probably. Yeah. 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 So, you know, when I'm saying he didn't pose a physical threat, he had scarred a nurse for life, so, which is disgusting. Yeah. He punched one of the nurses really hard in the breast when he was on healthcare, um, to the point where she was concerned about that and shit. He was all about shit. Cell fires. He used to set himself on fire. He'd set cells on fire. There was one officer when he first came into our jail, actually got sacked and did time. The reason I'm telling you now is because it left a nasty taste with all the officers um, who knew this guy. So you imagine now you've got somebody highly manipulative, chucking excrement, feces, shit about, setting things on fire. Well, at this time, he was in the segregation unit. So this lad was on nights all week. On nights, you have a cell key in a special pouch. If you unlock a cell with that key... You have to fill paperwork in. So no staff on nights can go into a cell. In the day, obviously, a big bunch of keys. Anyway, we aren't going into much today detail. He gave this officer, who was very stressed, he worked in the segregation a long time, 
he gave him a hard time. And this officer ended up punching him, right? So we're talking about one punch. Not acceptable. I'm not saying it's acceptable. But it was pursued and the officer actually did time. 18 months, I believe. He lost his job. Now, me, I hope that guy at some point sues the prison service and gets a lot of money. He wasn't a bad lad and one punch, you know, 18 months and made an example of. And, you know... There was no need for it to go that far either. It is. Funnily enough, they both ended up at Forest Bank in the segregation unit together. So Smith, who had punched, the officer who punched him, were actually both in the segregation unit. But what I do know is that the staff at Forest Bank, whilst that guy was there, did look after him. He wasn't treat like scum because he was a prison officer. So anyway, so Smith, this day... Pisses me off now. <laughs> this day, I'm working with Webby. Now, Webby has retired now. Webby was um, 60-something, which is, you know, he's still young for a prison officer because they can work till the 68. Webby was a guy who come on to healthcare when he was 60. Been in job a long time. Pre-riots. He was there when riots happened. But what Webby was, was when he come on to healthcare, he says, no, no, nothing about mental health, nothing about self-harm, nothing about this unit. He was willing to learn, and he enjoyed it. He learned. So this particular weekend, I'm on with Webby, so it's going to be a good weekend. I'm on with Webby, we're going to have a laugh. Not so. Smith, by this time, is five stone. He's a diabetic. He's probably not having a diabetic medication at this point because he's he's so small. He's probably not diabetic anymore. He'd lost a limb by this time as well, so he's only got one leg, so he's looking like a frail creature. So KK, my mate, says he needs to go to hospital. Now, what would normally happen, Smith will be taken to hospital by staff from elsewhere. They call staff in or use other staff. So two governors come on to healthcare. One who I liked, one who I didn't. Sam Webby, yeah, you're taking Smith to hospital. Why is that then? So there's two other officers there. Why aren't they taking him? I've made a decision, you're taking him. So I questioned him again. Why aren't them staff taking him? Well, I'll tell you why. They refused. Because he was a you know, it was an old man who threw shit about. However, these two staff are gonna be left on healthcare. They didn't know healthcare, we did. So, being a sensible Yorkshireman, I said to him, I about to leave Webby here, I'll go with one of them. Governor, no, I've made a decision. So like I did from time to time. Spat me dummy out, told him to go fuck himself, we'll take him. So we did. So we took Smith to hospital, all five stone, one leg, you know. So when we get there, we're in a very, very busy A&E. All the bays were full. There's patients in the corridor, ambulance staff everywhere. We've got Smith. So this um, really nice staff nurse come up. So I went up and says, look, I'm sorry, love. She says, I know who he is. She knew him because one of her friends had been scarred for life by him. So she come up by name, said, um, what what are you doing here like? Called her all manner of profanities, names, abusive, and then he just shit on the bed. Big pile of diarrhea. <laughs> Big pile <laughs> of diarrhea and then got his hand and scooped it onto the floor. So again, it's not me that has just shit on the bed. I turns to her, I says, I'm sorry, love. 
She says, it's all right. It's not your fault. So we were then swiftly moved into a side room. You got a reception desk with four um, clerical staff working at it. We're in a room, you know, with all the equipment in, a bed that he's on. Webby's cuffed to him. I'm there. Doctor comes in after about two hours. By this time, he's dropped another one and rubbed it all over himself. So he's covered in shit, laid on bed. It stinks. Why does he put it on himself? Everywhere. Well, you know, you know, just moved his hand about his body. It's everywhere. It just stinks as shit. It's really hot. It's really hot. Um, I don't know if they've ever been in that environment. You can taste it and it's like... You can feel it on your skin. It is horrendous. We've been there two hours. So I goes out to these staff. I said, can you find out, please, whether this doctor's coming? So these staff are rather rude. Tell me to shut the door because it stinks, which it did. So I went back in. Webby says, what did they say? So I told him. So I opened both doors. So we're now in this room with both doors open. Anyway, within uh, minutes, this doctor's here. So the doctor's coming to me. He says, we're going to need to take bloods. He's refusing. He's calling doctor all names under the sun. He's spitting. I, I don't know how to say this expression. When you greb up, you bring spit and God's phlegm. Hawking phlegm. Hawking phlegm. He's hawking phlegm up and trying to spit it at the doctor. He's still covered in shit. He's got shit on his hands, under his fingernails. He stinks. So the doctor says, can I have a word outside? He says, right, I can't discharge him without taking bloods because if he dies, you know, we're in trouble. Is there any way we can take bloods from him? Says to Webby, exactly, repeated it, yeah. So um, Webby's left now, so I can say this. However, it weren't a bad thing. It might look bad to the public if they saw it in a documentary. Webby puts a sheet over his head so he can't hawk phlegm, yeah? <laughs> I pinned him to the bed, which didn't take a lot of doing. You know, he's five stone with one leg. Doctor come in, got his vein, took bloods, away he went. Um, came back, he says, yeah, he can discharge him. At that time, staff had just arrived. That was four hours, me and Webby, in a little room, Stinking of shit, you know. Um, it, it just it just wound me up. And, and what was worse, when I got back to the prison, I found out that the healthcare had been locked down all day, which mean nobody'd be out because the staff who were on there refused to open them up because they didn't know them. So you know that that is a bit of the sort of the, the actual situation. We did have a laugh about it, me and Webby. Yeah. You know, he says you need to put this in the book, joking because it weren't even a. You know, it was a little tiny idea then. Yeah. But that was made worse by the fact that Stafford refused. The governor forced us to go. Mm -hmm. And then when it gets back, the actual unit where I worked had been locked down all day. Yeah. So, not good. <sighs> what a story. Some of my most watched videos are prison survival advice stuff. And I see a lot of ex-prisoners putting this stuff online. I've not seen anything from a guard. So, say someone came to you. Prison officers. Officer. <laughs> say someone came to you. And said, like, look, so it was like a, a female friend says, look, my, my, my son, he's only like 20. He's going to be going to prison for a couple of years in Manchester, for example. Would you just sit down, have a talk with him and, and give him some advice on how, how to best survive and get through it without getting any trouble? What, what would you tell that young person? 
If he smoked, I'd tell him to stop smoking. Okay. Don't take any drugs. Mm -hmm. Don't take anything off anybody. And that would be a good starting point. And what would that do? Prevent him from getting in debt? Oh, it's so easy now. So easy. Um, everything's double bubble, or used to be, in English prisons. What that means for our American audience and British viewers. If you lend me half an ounce of tobacco this week, next week, double bubble, I owe you an ounce. So it's very easy to get in debt, especially if you haven't got money. If you can't pay, then I might be on your case to get a family member to bring something in for me. If we go back to 2013, 14, thereabouts, you can look online at all these prison reports. The then outgoing prison inspector, Inspector of Her Majesty's Prisons, um, did his... His final report on strange ways. He said himself, tough guy this, I've seen the guy in our prison a few times. It's a tough audience, do you know what I mean? He would come round with his um, his workers, shall we say. They could go anywhere in the prison, look at anything, talk to anyone, go into segregation, talk to any staff, talk to any prisoners, and they did a report. And people used to be fearful of him, but his report on strange ways for safety, dynamic security, staff-prisoner relationships, everything, everything taken into account, audits, the whole nine yards, said it was possibly, possibly the best inspection he'd ever done. And at that time, you know, I would not have been fearful of anyone going in strange ways because it had a good regime, it had good staff, and it was well run. Now... Um, different place, completely transformed. So if somebody said to me now, again, I'd just, you know, keep your head down. Don't get involved in anything. Don't take anything off anybody. That's about best advice you could give. Yeah, so in America, it seemed like debts were the biggest cause of violence, and in particular drug debts. Would you say that's true for the UK? Yeah, probably drugs, tobacco, uh, phones, all these sort of things. I will um, mention one little thing which I could never get my head round. If, for instance, Sean, um, I was a prisoner at Strangeways and you came in my cell, you were my cellmate, and the very next day I got out and I had a debt, I owed someone, you would inherit that debt. Cellmates inherit if, debt? If, if, I, if I left the prison, someone would be visiting you. You're right, Sean, yeah. He owed me 50 quid, you know, yeah, they would. I've seen it happen. I've seen people get absolutely battered. So yeah. somebody would go in a cell with someone they didn't know, they'd get out, and that person would get battered because they'd inherited their debt. Wow. So now, with your spice, you know, your tobacco and everything else that's going on, very, very dangerous place. If, if you start borrowing, you're in a world of shit. Do you think they can ever stop drugs from getting into prison? No, definitely not. Um, anatomically, all human beings have... I don't have to be as God and now as with the media. But basically, they'll they'll stick stuff up their asses, You know, yourself, drones, when I left in 2.15, were just coming on the scene. Yeah? But, you know, people used to put um, soap envelopes in LSD and all these fancy ways. Now, they just stick it up their ass. There is people who live on the street who are going to prison with an ass full of tobacco or drugs or people who are in debt, like the lad I know, or people will go in the cells and take drugs and tobacco in 
and make thousands. Did you watch Prison on Channel 4? No, I didn't. It showed the drug gangs were running the place and some of the dealers were boasting we're making more money in here that in the, selling drugs to the prisoners than we were before we got arrested. Of course we will. And then they had this scam whereby, like, so there was a shot caller and then he had his underlings and then they had the low-level people. So, like, the underlings of the shot caller had drugs in their cells. Guards come, raided the cells. Is this in America? This is No, this is Channel 4. Prison uh, officers, then. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, sorry. This is Birmingham, I think it was. Yeah, Birmingham. Yeah. So, basically, when they raided these cells... They found the drugs, and you think, all right, so these, these guys are working for the shot caller now. They're through. They're going to get extra charges. They're going to get extra prison time, blah, blah, blah. They're going to get sent to lockdown. All they did was have lowest-level prisoners go to the officer's office and say, those drugs were mine. Yeah. And then they, they were laughing. They were like, they were just out dealing again the next day. Right, here's the thing. If, if you find a weapon or a phone or drugs in a cell, yeah. and there's two people in that cell... yeah. You can't nick both people. At one time, a governor would say, is it yours? No. Is it yours? No. Right. Place it both on report and they would both get some sort of punishment. Again, you know, no longer the case now. There's a phone. Is it yours? Is it yours? That's it. They get away with it. Um, it it's not a good place to be. What I will say is private sector, when I was in it, lot said about private sector. You know, I got ridiculed when I went strange ways about being at Forest Bank. Private sector, very few staff. I was on a wing. There'd be two staff on a wing with 86 prisoners. Um, A lot of new staff, big turnover of staff, low wages. Now, no different. Private public sector, they've dragged it down. A prison officer's gone from 29 grand to 22 grand now. Yeah. You look at four grand of that worst shifts you will ever work in your life so that 22 grand also you know that covers your working christmas day never seen a bank holiday never seen your family anti-social hours everything they've they've dragged in this country public sector down to private sector what do you think about the introduction of the american justice and incarceration model here the privatization you know, and um, for profits, profit, there being like this profit motive to lock people up. Because in America, one in a hundred adults in prison right now, um, they started to mass incarcerate people for weed possession because they oh. were the easiest people to arrest. Well, I, I did read something about American prisons whereby, you know, 50% people in there are sort of for selling weed and possession of a small amount of weed. And if they let them all go, there'd be no need for DEA and all these things. Yeah. And it is very political. I think it is very political in this country. It was never about politics, I don't think. Um it's, it's it's about budgets and wages yeah. and making profit, but, but nobody should be making a profit out of locking people up. When I first went to Forest Bank, they used to get paid for every bed. So if it held 1,100 and they had 900, they'd get paid for 1,100. That is a fact. That changed. That has changed over time. Yeah. Um, some things in the private sector were really good. They could learn the workshops at Forest Bank. That's where people go to work. Kitchens, fantastic. Bear in mind, it was a new prison. So when it was built, it was it was purposeful. The workshops, they had welding workshops where you could learn to weld. Um, auto electrician, you know, where you could learn to wind alternators. And, uh, 
you know, sort cars out, this sort of thing. They had double glazing units being made. They had furniture being made. And prisoners would get a decent financial reward. Not massive, people would think. And some people would say, you know, well, why are you paying people in prison anyway to go to work? Um, now it's it's sort of backfired with public sector. If you look at Strange Ways, the two best workshops there, because let's, let's look at prisons, right? You know, people talk about rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is what I had in 2012 on my shoulder with a physio. There's no rehabilitation in prison at all. We're not changing anyone. We're making better prisoners, making them more violent and everything else. So, like I said, let's go to Strange Ways, the two best workshops. There was a plastering workshop and a bricky workshop. And when they come out of there, they could lay bricks and they could plaster and they could earn four or five hundred quid a week. Those two shops went by the way for office space and interviewing space. Mm. You know, Strange Wade had a sewing shop, yeah, where they used to make prison tracksuits. Now, some people who had no money would gladly go to work and make prison tracksuits. Normal prisoners... You know, you get a bit of money sent in for your commissary, your commissary or your canteen. You're not going to get out of bed for £2.50 a week and go and make tracksuits. You know, there's no incentive for anything. There's no purposeful activity at all. So what's the hourly rate in UK prisons for jobs? Where um, I was at, it was 10 cents to 50 cents an hour, depending upon the job. There was no specific hourly rate. The best paid job was the kitchens, Yeah. The prisoners got to eat in the kitchens. The kitchens were immaculate. Five-star hygiene rating. Um, Well-run, decent quality food, as much as possible made from scratch. They were possibly, again, I might be wrong, maybe 15, 20 quid. The normal workshops was approximately, so if they're in sewing or plastering or bricky shop, maybe £5.50 a week. That would be for nine sessions. Morning and afternoon, Monday to Thursday, and a Friday morning. Because prisons have targets to meet, at Strange Ways, you know, last couple of years I were there, they were actually sending people part-time to work. So you'd have somebody going in the morning and somebody else in the afternoon. So you would go to work four days for two quid. You're not going to get out of bed, are you? No. And the other thing is, there was a maximum on education and workshops of 400 people. You've got 1,200 prisoners. You know, it's not happening. Sam, why did you become a prison officer? Why did I become a prison officer? Kevin Sobrolski, one of my friend's cousin, said to me, <laughs> said to me way back, well, he said it a few times over a few years, but about 1998, he started talking to me. He'd been in... Um, quite a long time, he loved it. He says, you'll love it, you know, you can talk to people, chat to people, you like your rugby, bit of rough and tumble, you'll love it. So he actually got me working in the forensic units, uh, a couple of forensic units. They were in Nottingham and Mansfield, right? So this is about 1998. So he says to me, I've, I've got a bit of a job on side. I'm working in these forensic units, female-only forensic units, which are, um, do you just call them mental hospitals in America? So he, he got me in the back door. Um, I love that job. Basically, I worked in two hotels, purposely built for hotels, which were changed into residential units for women. 
um, about 20, 25 in each, and they had an upstairs and a downstairs. These women ranged in age from 18 to into the 70s. They've been in the mental health system. They've been to Rampton, which is a high security hospital. Some have been to Broadmoor, which is a high security hospital. They've been to Ashworth, which is a high security hospital. They'd done all that, you know, it was sort of like the last call. You know, people didn't want these extremely violent, uh, some horrendous self-harming. He got me working there, which I really loved. Um, and then he kept going on about prison, prison, prison. Job come up at Forest Bank private sector. He said to me, jump on that, get your foot in the door, and then, you know, as soon as you're in there, apply for public sector. So thanks, Kevin, for that. Would you recommend the profession? Right, would I recommend it? <laughs> I, I will. T I will tell you what I I told someone on a uh, a radio station because they said to me, you know, we had a bit of uh, toing and froing, and they said, "Would what? How how would you? You know, what what would you say to people about this job?" So I said, "Well, if you read my book, and you still want to do the job, then maybe you're in with a chance." <laughs> But the whole system, the whole system is very flawed. And where they need to start, they need to look at recruitment and they need to look at training. Because no amount of training uh, will ever prepare you for that job. Your CNR that everyone does is brilliant. But the, the training is it, pathetic, really. It's embarrassing. It might have been all right, you know, 20, 30 years ago when, you know, people were looking for a job and there were lots of experienced staff and that. But now... Not so much. We've touched on some dark stories here today. And you mentioned that one was the one of the worst work days of your life. How about a, a, the highlight of this entire 11 years? What was the best? What was the day? highlight? Oh, my word. What was the hot? Well, I here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I said this to my best friends, KK and brothers. Brothers families remember my families you know I, I worked with those two lasses for seven years they were my managers we were best friends you know there was lots of pleasurable days just working with lovely people on that healthcare it was dangerous place to work it was extremely tough but it was a small amount of staff and i enjoyed it k-wing again when i was on k-wing a lot of people who i worked with at that time um I'll say they were best prison years of their life. We had a good team. We had a laugh, lots of dark humour. It was bouncing, probably, you know, like one of your raves pretty much, K-Wing. It was like a complete zoo. But, you know, it, it had an atmosphere. It, yeah. it was going on all the time. Yeah. Lots of interaction. So families, I've just mentioned families, right? I, I realise that prisoners have got families and a lot of them have preconceived perceptions about prison officers what i need to mention is amy my fiance and billy my daughter and everyone else's families who are involved with prison officers prison officers families because it, it it's only now and i mean this last couple of months that i'm looking now amy had some dark days i was at work long hours you know i was a grumpy miserable bastard you think i thought that i was leaving that job at the gates and then when you speak to her, you know, not so, you know, she had loads of tears, 
uh, lots of time on her own. Uh, Billy, my daughter, when when I um, was signed off on the six in 215, you know, I hadn't seen her for six years. I was out the door at like six o'clock every day mm. in at 10. Mm. She resented me coming in into the home mm. and we battled and clashed. And now we have a, a good understanding. So, you know, there, there were lots of, of really good days, but what you forget is all the bad days. If you had one good day, a Sunday, you know, Lynn on K-Wing, bless her, cooked us a breakfast for a quid, that that would be the highlight of the week. So, I read a book. I don't know if it was Turning the Key or Turning the Screw. A journalist in New York, he wanted to go and write about Rikers Island. Oh, yes. And the governor wouldn't let him in. So he applied for a job, got assigned as an officer, and, um, you know, he's getting all this stuff, writing all this stuff down. But within six months of working in this hostile, dangerous, negative environment, he started taking that energy home. And he was abusive to his wife and kids. Stanford Prison Experiment, do you know about that? Yeah. Right, Stanford Prison Experiment, for the people who don't know about that. Um, young psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever, early 70s, behavioural experiment, As for volunteers, split them into two groups. One of them, he says, you're going to be prison guards because it was in America. The other, you're going to be prisoners. Had the prisoners arrested properly, didn't they? Strip search, spray with DDT or whatever they did. And they set up a prison environment in a very short time. It became very hostile. The guards became cruel. Um, And the outcome was that if you put good people in a bad place, they will become bad. What I will say is, yeah, you know, lots of negatives about prison. Strange ways, 1,200 prisoners don't want to be there and a lot of staff don't want to be there. There was some absolute horrible bastards there. Um, I'm talking about staff now, but far outweighed by lots of lovely, hardworking people. You know, some of them not qualified. There's some of them not qualified. I, I mentioned one lad in the book who who looks like, you know, he looks like one of these Russian dolls. Short, fat belly, um, no interpersonal skills, no presence, no nothing, but a massive heart, you know, and ridiculed, ridiculed by staff for years, but sticks at it. So, you know, you've got to take that from it for all. It'd be easy, so easy to focus on the non-negative, but there were lots of, like, really, really lovely, hardworking people. On the opposite of that, then, I don't know if you would even be prepared to answer this question. Would you be allowed to say what's the worst thing you ever saw an officer do? Right, I will tell you now, Sean, quite definitely. <clears throat> the bad people, um, they they pick their moments and pick their audience. It's very cliche that, but they do. There is people, there's a lot of officers, what I call chameleon officers. So you'll get a couple of officers, they work with me, uh, and some of my mates on healthcare, they'd be great, you know, they'd mix in. If they went and worked somewhere else with someone who was treated prisoners like shit, and you do get people like that, they would take on that persona. There's a lot of people in there who are incredibly stressed all their prison careers because they can't be themselves. Me, I, I really had to fight the first couple of years to keep my personality and, and be who I was. Do you know what I mean? It is very difficult. The worst thing I've seen, no. There's probably lots of things. Nothing far too extreme, although 
Um, I, I remember one lad, one of the first things I saw, we were restraining a prisoner. He was uh, extremely tough and it was a very violent restraint. And we were my mate, Lowe. He's a lad I work with at Forest Bank and Strange Ways. Not a brave lad. He wouldn't like that. But as a prison officer, totally, totally dedicated. You know, he's a fantastic guy. And we'd restrained this prisoner. We got him under restraint. So that's game over, yeah? You know, he's on the floor. And a security member of staff came in and jumped off a bunk bed into the middle of his back. My mate was up in seconds, got him bit throat, ragged him up against wall, literally picked him up. You ever fucking do that in front of me again? You know? There was one lad. Um, again, I didn't see it. There is bad things, so you know I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to shy away from that. Again, Lowy, I work with him in the segregation unit at Forest Bank. So we come in one weekend, one Monday morning. There's a lad who had been in the special cell. He was an arsonist, small lad, not physically threatening in any way. He was mithersome, extremely mithersome, forever on his cell bell. Tried to get him to come out of his cell for a shower, won't come out of his cell, very withdrawn, in a corner, shaking. Anyway, we, we managed to get him, uh, me and another member of staff, some coaxing into a shower. I had to fetch Lowy, covered from head to toe in bruises. He'd been battered. Nothing you can do about it. It does happen. Um, You know, like I say, put put good people in a bad place and some become bad. The impression I'm getting from you is that you did your best under these you know, wicked circumstances at times, your heart was in the right place. What would you say that stopped you from becoming cruel? Um, I was brought up. You know, my nan used to say, speak and treat people that like to be spoke to and treat this end. Yeah. You know, very much so. Um, that was instilled in me. That's what affected me that I put myself through therapy because my head was fucked at one bit. Yeah. And the psychologist actually said to me, one of your biggest problems is you, you need to give yourself a break. You're far too tough on yourself. Mm. Um, and it's also the system. The system, there's people who were my friends who I haven't fallen out with who will never speak to me again because I've written that book because they believe, even though they're not bad person, I'm, th I'm thinking of one specifically. Mm. I won't embarrass him and mention his name. He'll never speak to me again because even though he was a really good officer and not, you know, not no darkness in him, no badness or whatever. He was a funny guy because he believes what happens in prison should stay in prison. So they look at you as if you've, it's a betrayal. Yeah, a very. I'll yeah. tell you what, a very small minority of people do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But at the end of the day, Sean, you know, it was important if I was going to do a book that there's there's things in there that the publicist says to me, particularly at the end where I levered that prisoner. You know. Perhaps we don't need that in there, Sam. You know, I, I don't want you to get in trouble. And I jokingly said, I says it does need to be in there because that's part of the story. That's my downfall. But I also said I'd do six months for the publicity, <laughs> which never happened. Well, I'll, speaking of publicity, I'll mention your authenticity uh, when I give you a five-star Amazon review on that one. Changing uh, a little bit up here. I had an interview, well, a, a brief interview I did up in Manchester last month, actually, with a guy who's got a YouTube channel I've called him. I've come across Cody. him. Yeah. I was thinking when I'm reading your book, I bet 
Cody was in there, perhaps, but when you when you were, I'm sure he was at Forest Blank. When you're when working, I was there. yeah, yeah. Now he's said that he was associated with the Noonan yep. crime family. Yeah. Do you know anything about them? Yeah, I do. Yeah. You, you, can you let's say not talk. Not... Let's not talk about the older ones. Let's talk about the two younger ones. Okay. There's two twins. Yeah. So, um, obviously, there was a documentary aired in Manchester about the Noonans, Dominic Noonan, uh, Desmond Noonan, and that. These two two twins. Anyway, they landed in reception. All these youngsters. They were young, um, possibly ranging from maybe all in their early 20s. So they were on K-Wing, G-Wing, sorry, that's the induction wing. How the process works, from reception, you have an induction wing where prisoners would be sent, they'd have an induction, and then they move to K-Wing, and then they go round rest of the jail. So we knew this this bunch had landed. There were seven of eight of them. Can you imagine them all little Manx scallies? Anyway, we, we got them within 24 hours I think they came in at night, the very next morning. I was on with their Nobby Nobbler in the book, uh, a good friend, a cracking officer. So we're on the twos landing. It's locked down at this time, and we get these guys, and they're all over the landing. They come on, they're everywhere. It was like a bunch of school kids, like. But obviously, they're all criminals. So we sort of rounding them up, and they're giving us all back chat and lip and stuff like that, just being ourselves. Anyway, it must have been uh, a week later. Just a little bit, explain a little bit about the IEP scene, IEP, incentive and earned privileges. I don't know what you get in America. When you come into an English prison, English Wells prison, you come on as what they call standard regime. So you will be in a cell, you will get a TV, you'll be allowed to spend so much money, dependent whether you are a remand prisoner or a sentenced prisoner. What happens is, after a period of time, if you are a model prisoner, you behave, you're polite, whatever, you can get enhanced status, which is a level up. You can spend more money. You can get your PlayStation, a lot of controversy around that, etc. Yeah, so the, it's, it's an incentive scheme. Behave, you can aim for this. If you misbehave, you can get lowered to basic regime. And when I was on K-Wing, that was done strict. Basically, your TV's gone for 28 days. If you were a sentenced prisoner, you what you put in corned beef, which is a prison tracksuit that is corned beef in colour, and you got very little. You got two hours out of cell, uh, a shower, a phone call, and fuck all else, really. It was very strict. So we've had all these scallies come in, the two twins and all their cronies. Within a week, they're all in corned beef. So they're all over the landings, they're being abusive and threatening. Within a week, we sort of stood on landing, opening them one cell at a time. You know, please, boss, can I have a shower? This sort of thing. So even though they were, like, lively and out there and up to no good on the out, they fell very, very quickly into the prison regime. And that is a scary thing. I want to bring up, very briefly, a Somalian prisoner because this is quite poignant as well. So... When I'm doing my strip search, and we've already talked about in reception, and this guy sticks in my mind, we had a Somalian prisoner. So when we've taken him into the, and there was a language barrier, he did speak English, but it wasn't understanding why we had taken him into a cubicle and what was happening with the strip search. For me, he thought he was either going to get sexually assaulted or leathered. Yeah? 
He was cowering and he was fucking terrified. First time in a, in a jail, he'd been lifted. You know, he's absolutely shitting himself. Two weeks later, he's on the servery on K-Wing where you serve meals. You know, prisoners, give me some more chips. Fuck off, man, move on. You know, not big in stature, but in two weeks, he was cowering, thinking he was going to get sexually assaulted and battered to, in two weeks, that's all. And that is a scare, that's the scary thing about prison. When I was younger, I was terrified of going to prison. You know, I got arrested a few times, fighting and stuff like that. Having been in prison now, it's boring. It's become more violent, don't get me wrong, but I would be bored in prison. And that's the problem. Once people get there from being fearful two weeks to fitting into the regime and it becoming the norm. And they make their criminal connections. It's not a deterrent. It's not a deterrent. They make their criminal connections. They make their criminal connections. So do you think it increases crime, the system as it is then, because they, they get they learn from each other and get out and they've got more bigger networks? When I was at Forest Bank on the Young Offenders, they were 18 to 21, a horrendous age group, fights every day. There was four young lads on there. The youngest was 17. He was made, he was made an adult prisoner to put him in Forest Bank, yeah? At 17, he'd already served a sentence for armed robbery that he did at 13. So he is 17. There's another lad that's 18. There's one at 19 and one at 20, plus a couple of other lads who were associates. They had four pairs of night trainers in the cell, you know, Gransworth for night trainers, pictures on the wall, Subarus, you know, they, they got it all. The rest of the young offenders on that wing for in for petty stuff, nicking cars, burglaries, damage. At least two dozen of them lads who I saw at Forest Bank are later sought strange ways in for armed robberies. It's like a whole population idolised them and then went away and became armed robbers. Is there any kind of solution or anything the government could do to get those kids off that track? Wow. Very difficult this time. There's so many things wrong. Um, I think you've got to get them young, Sean. I think, I've said this, you need to educate, you know, my daughter is 12. You need to educate kids, like you're doing. You know, I, I believe you interviewed the lad who used to be an addict. I'm, I'm sure you did. You know, get people, ex-drug addicts, perhaps ex-prison officers, police officers, People like get them in, and but the thing is, there's got to be no airy fairy or farcing about. You need to go in and tell it as it is. Show pictures; they can look away. Tell them what it's like. You know, tell them once you've been to jail, you're not going to be scared of jail. But for the rest of your life, you know, if I'm saying I'm taking twenty years away from you at your next forty, and you're going to spend them in a shitty little cell, you know, you need to educate kids now. Yeah, my philosophy is more education, less incarceration. There's like a pipeline, isn't there, for the young people just to is. get straight into the gangster. Right. It's, Britain has become lawless, right? It, it, it's become lawless. Prisons are now lawless. You know, they, they've reduced staff to the numbers that are dangerous. The dynamic security is gone. Prisoners are getting banged up more and more. So there's no staff-prisoner relationships. You know, you, you see youngsters on the street, there's no bobbies anymore. You know, you need to start. And, and bring it in, but start educating people. And give them things to do. Yeah, once they want to get to prison, I can probably 
okay, maybe a dozen people who come to prison first time and never seen them again. You know, it's it's a revolving door. It's yeah, horrendous. Sad. All right, then. So you mentioned that you've been reading Hard Time versus your own experience. What would you say are the biggest differences in the US versus the Manchester system you experienced in England? I think dynamic security. Dynamic security. I think as a population of prisoners, you're pretty much allowed to manage yourselves, as it were. Yeah. And there isn't that much interaction from prison officers, guards. Yeah. Um. You know yourself, right? You you've you've been in some situations, uh, you know, where you've met um, these mafia type people, it men. You've been on your own, you know, dangerous, violent individuals and stuff like that. You, you get used to mixing with that crowd, yeah. You know, and you're not unintelligent, so you you took intelligence to that. Where your mate Wildman had got some brawn and stuff, then you know you, you need one or the other, or ideally both. I would think to survive yeah. in American prison. But again, watching what you say and watching what you do, yeah, definitely, yeah, um, it is scary. But you know, did did you? How, how long did it take you before it became the norm? Or I'm not saying you felt comfortable, but you know that that initial gut feeling of being absolutely terrified sort of you know you sat First with your Aryan brother sleep, and playing yeah. you know yeah it becomes normal it's like it's almost like your adrenaline is going non-stop and in the beginning you can't sleep and then you like internalize your fear so you don't show it but the pressure is so intense i think it, it pushes you into mental illness i felt mentally ill by the time i got out Let's switch that over here. I, I think prison officers now, a lot of prison officers, people I work with, they, they can they can slag me off or say that's not true or whatever. I think now a lot of prison officers internalise it and there's a lot of prison officers now who are extremely stressed, probably drinking massive amounts and don't see any way out. People talk about pension, Sean. I, I used to get fed up with the conversation about pension, my pension, my pension. They tell you how much it was going to be. They're like reassuring themselves. It's not worth it end of day when you look at it. I mean, I, I weren't far off from either having a stroke or heart attack or going completely cuckoo, you know, because the, the, the pressure is on that population. The prisoners, as it were, have got the upper hand, whereas they're sort of self-managing in America. The guards have stood back. Um, I watched the programme on the, the Norwegian prison where they treat people civilly and they get conjugal visits, and they see the family rebelly, all that contact, and there's no violence and things like that. That would be the way forward, but, you know, the, the, certainly this country is not, you know... How how can you reduce budgets on anything to do with law and order when the population's getting bigger? You can't do it. So how have you dealt with your own trauma, PTSD, from your experiences? Right, like PTSD, I'm glad you brought that up. PTSD, for me, Sean... Um, PTSD didn't finish me. You know, anyone, any prison officer, any frontline responder who who goes see a psychologist or a doctor or whatever maybe will get diagnosed. You know, if you're having nightmares or whatever, it never stopped me going to work, you know, deaths in custody, whatever. What it did in the end, it added to my walls because I couldn't shut my mind down mm. because I was revisiting incidents, not all of them unpleasant, so 
but but there's no support. There's no support in prison. Got no support at all. My friend's going through it now. My friend is in a bad way, you know, and he's got to the point now where he's he's going to have a mental breakdown. Mm. And the prison service now he's at that point, and now we're offering him help. And he's like said, "Where the fuck were you ten years ago when I'm finding dead bodies and shit like that?" You know, I was assaulted on K Wing within my first twelve months by a lad who actually assaulted me at Forest Bay. He got me twice. However, they have a care team at Manchester, so some two years after this incident, I got an email. Um, We're sorry to hear about your recent trauma. How are you? So I replied, uh, I'm fine, thank you. What recent trauma? We believe you were assaulted. Two years after I was assaulted, I got a fucking email from the care team. You know, there's nothing. There's no support mm. at all. None. So I, I am fearful. There's people in there now who are really like, as I've said, they might never speak to me if they saw me. They might ignore me. Others wouldn't. But you can tell they're stressed, you know, and they're, they're sticking it out. I've only got another 10 years. You imagine 10 years of constant stress. Was it the stress that caused you to finish? I'll tell you what finished me. It's, it's very easy to look back. I worked on healthcare for seven years, Um a lot going on, small amount of officers. We had no prison managers, no senior officer. We were nurse manager led. So I worked with a lovely team of nurses and officers. So we got our own work ethics. We get on with stuff. You do that, I'll do that, you do that. That changed in 2015. We got prison managers. We got a new set of officers on who, to be honest, some, some I had to be interviewed for my job um, to go and work on healthcare. Whilst working on there, I was re-interviewed when they re-employed. But in 2015, people were just told. So there was a lot of staff. You know, I'm going to be honest. I, I didn't. They were lazy. You know, they got no sort of work ethics and that. But it changed. And also, the relationship I had with the nurses broke down. It became us and them. The nurses had their own working group. So I asked to move off. Yeah. So I went to work on A-Wing, which then the reception wing. And I was bored, Sean, for three weeks. I was only three weeks till I got injured. I was bored. You know, it, it, it dragged. And I was just in conflict constantly because the prison population from March 2015 became unruly because there weren't enough staff to get them out. So they'd spend a weekend locked up. On Monday morning, they'd be pissed and angry. So we started getting more and more incidents, more serious incidents, more assaults. And, you know, I am a patient person. I've stood for eight hours talking to someone who's eating their own shit before they went to hospital and that. I've got all the patients in the world. But also, like I've told you, there's some lovely people and not a lot of them have presence. So if one of my mates was stood and three lads were having a go in the face and they were backing off because the visits were late, I would go and confront them. And quite a lot of time, he didn't get support. So I became more and more confrontational. The br- the breaking point was seeing, you know, two members of staff getting laid out for no reason mm-hmm. other than a prisoner didn't get the meal he wanted. Um, and then I got injured. And it was only then when I went to doctor, you know, that I, I was physically and mentally unwell. Mm-hmm. So it, it finished me quite quick. You know, I went from patient, calm, you know, able to deal with that to just on edge all the time. Where a lot of people have just carried on working just the way they've always worked. 
What would you say to young people out there watching this who think it's cool to get into crime? If they get arrested, they're just going to be on PlayStations all day long. You got any advice to them? I don't think uh, youngsters listen to advice. Um, I, I think they need educating. They need they need something now, and, and I don't know how they're going to do it, whereby they're made to understand. And I know a lot of kids from sort of deprived backgrounds, poor backgrounds, might well be on streets, vandalising and stuff like that. So arresting them and finding the parents isn't going to work. If you've got no money, you know, like now, the homeless situation, finding homeless people, what the fuck's that about? It's not going to improve anything. It, it's down to education. And I've seen the American programs where they take juvies and they stick them in with hardened criminals and they shit themselves. Scared straight. You know, yeah, scared straight, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Take, take them somewhere and show them exactly, show them a cell in yeah. strange ways. Yeah. Show them what it's like, mm-hmm. you know, show them what they can expect. Just having your freedom taken away and everything else. Your family. Yeah, your family, you know. the suffering on your family. Um, yeah, it, 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 it adds up. So, you know, I'm going to highly recommend people out the. Is this available worldwide on Amazon ebook, um, paperback, audiobook? I hope so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's, you know, they put it out there where they can. Are there any other ways um, people can support you? Have you got any links we can put below this video? I've got people, nothing yet. You don't have a Twitter, Facebook, anything like that, webpage? No. Bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're out there, the only thing you can do right now is support Sam. Checking out his book, it's well worth a read just to get the other perspective. I know a lot of people into the, the criminal side and the prison side from the prisoner's perspective, but you should also read the officer's side as well. <laughs> All right, give me a hug, big man. Cheers. No, thanks for inviting me, mate. Very enjoyable. <laughs>